from small towns like Merritt, BC, to large cities like Las Vegas and Chicago, my guest today has literally left his mark, both with his gloves off and his gloves on everywhere he's played. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest today is Mr. Blair Riley. Nystrom, Nystrom's really getting some good right hands in. Gillies is down with Sandstrom. Somebody better help Sandstrom. Everyone must be held accountable for their actions. You cannot see your star carried out in a stretcher and do nothing about it. Oh my, did Mick plant one on C-Card, wow. You can't put a bounty on a man's head. I just did. But just a minute, Al Arbor has won four Stanley Cups, so don't start telling Al Arbor what to do, you and John Davison. Welcome back to Coliseum Chronicles, The Penalty Box. I'm your host, Joe Lazito. Welcome to episode 35. And as always, I want to thank my returning listeners and welcome any new listeners to the show. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to come back and uh, hear the new episodes or check me out for the first time. Uh, nothing earth shattering on the show. It's, I think it's just a good, a good time show. It's something that, uh, hopefully you'll learn a lot, uh, from my guests and, uh, have a good time doing it. Nothing too serious here. Uh, no fake news on this uh, show and, uh, just a good time, I think. So, uh, welcome and welcome back. A few things, uh, whatever platform you are listening to the show on, could you please like subscribe, rate and review the show? Uh, I don't know how the other platforms work personally. When I listen to podcasts, I listen to it on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. I think it's the same things, uh, thing now. I don't, I'm not sure actually. Um, and I know you can subscribe and you can rate and review. I'm assuming the other platforms do it that way, but I'm not sure. But whatever, whatever your platform allows you to do for the show, if you can kind of do whatever, subscribe, rate it, review it, uh, all that stuff helps, helps me grow the show somehow. I don't know. That's, that's above my pay grade, but uh, if you could just take a second and, and do that, it would help me out. It would help the show out, and I would appreciate that. If you're on Twitter, you can go to my Twitter account, at Joe underscore Lozito, or the show's Twitter account, at Kali Sinbin Pod. Uh, follow me on both. I'll follow you back on both. Uh, again, there's a lot of nonsense on social media. If you're listening to the show, you obviously are a fan of the Islanders, a fan of uh, hockey fighting, or a fan of both. And if that's the case, I'm pretty sure you'll enjoy both of my uh, Twitter feeds. Nothing too serious on there. I don't get into politics or any other nonsense. It's just really just kind of stuff to take your mind off of real life at times. So uh, check me out on Twitter. Give me a follow, and I will follow you back. Facebook. Facebook.com slash Coliseum Chronicles podcast. Uh, I do have a 
personal Facebook account. And if you send me a friend request, I will, I will accept it, but there's not too much action on there. Most of uh, my posting goes on the podcast page there, facebook.com slash Coliseum Chronicles podcast. Uh, similar material is also put on Instagram, Coliseum underscore Chronicles underscore podcast. Basically, uh, not everyone has Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you do, Follow me on all those platforms. I'll follow you back. If you don't follow me on one of them, I'll follow you back. It's all the same stuff. Islander enforcer birthdays, Islander fight photos, little nuggets of Islander enforcer information. Just like I said, the kind of stuff that you see it, you don't have to shake your head thinking, oh my God, more of this stuff. It's kind of like, oh yeah, pretty cool. And uh, maybe there's a picture of a guy you haven't thought about in a while or a stat or something like that that makes you go, oh, okay. Like I said, it's a good, it's good time stuff. It's, it's nothing too serious. And, uh, I would, I mean, I would follow me if I wasn't me. So I would definitely look into that if I were you guys, um, merchandise is available. Teespring.com slash stores slash Coliseum hyphen Chronicles hyphen merchandise, or scroll to the bottom of the, of the episode description on the platform you're listening to. And there will be a link that will link you right up to the page. Now, as I said last week, I'm going to start doing listener-exclusive discounts. And last week, I did uh, 20%, and the code was ARBOR. And you would think now, a week into this, I would have a code ready to go for this week. But I don't. I'm usually pretty prepared, and of course, I don't have it. But because it is the birthday today, and I'm recording this Sunday morning, of the legendary Wendell Clark, use the code WENDELL. For 20% off, that code will be good for a week. This is a listener exclusive. I will not be posting this on social media. If you're interested in the merchandise, please go to the store. Like I said, click on the link at the bottom of the episode description. Enter the code WENDEL, W-E-N-D-E-L, for 20% off. You're welcome. When you go to my merchandise store, you will see my logo, which, as I've said, I'm very fond of. My logo was done by legendary Long Island artist Joe Marisich. And Joe is for hire. You can hire him to do uh, do certain project art projects. I was going to say hire him to do things for you, but I don't know if Mrs. Marisich would like that. But hire him for different art projects. Uh, he is skilled in various arts. Mostly on social media, he's known for his tunes. He does a lot of Jets, Mets, and Islander tunes. Uh, but he's been posting some stuff lately of regular art, like, pictures and paintings or whatever they, they look amazing um i'm pretty much a rube when it comes to that stuff but if you go to his social media you'll see how talented he is um on twitter he's at graphics joker g-r-a-f-i-x-j-o-k-e-r or you can reach him at loudegg.com. Trust me, Joe is very talented. My logo is awesome. And I can say that because I didn't do it. I couldn't do what Joe did. Uh, he's very talented. Check him out. Uh, reach out to him if you need any art projects done. And now, like I said, uh, like I've said a few weeks ago, hey, this week in New York, the Emperor Cuomo, he opened up movie theaters. I think three people are allowed in the theater as, at a time. So he's slowly, and I mean slowly, opening up everything here in New York. But what has been open for maybe a month or so are gyms and fitness centers. And if you're on Long Island, Nassau, Suffolk County, if you're in one of the boroughs, it's not that far of a drive. If you want to go to Long Island's premier mixed martial arts gym, that's Belmore Kickboxing and MMA. Belmore Kickboxing and MMA is open seven days a week. They have men's classes, women's classes, kids' classes. Private lessons are also available. 
Uh, pro fighters train here. UFC fighters like John Volante, Gregor Gillespie fight there. Uh, PFL champion or former champion, Andre Harrison trains there. Pro boxers, Chris Algieri, Adam Kaunachki train there. Train there. Do me a favor, Google the gym and you'll see the list of guys who train there or have trained there. The list is a mile long. Uh, champions, uh, big name fighters have trained there and average Joes like myself. Uh, it's not a gym that caters to professional fighters. It caters to every member, and you will enjoy the gym immensely. Trust me on that one. Belmore Kickboxing and MMA is located at 2551 Merrick Road in Belmore. BelmoreKickboxingMMA.com. You can reach them by phone, 516-679-5997. When you reach out to them, ask for Keith Trimble. Keith, in my opinion, is the best trainer in the world. He's a tremendous human being and a tremendous trainer. Uh, I, I love the guy. I love Keith. Uh, you can't do any better than him as far as that goes. Reach out to him. Mention that you heard about Belmore Kickboxing and MMA on this show, and you will get one free class. You can use it for yourself. You can use it for a family member, whatever. But as long as you mention the show, you'll get a free class. Test drive the gym. I'm sure you'll love it, and I'm sure that you will join. Belmore Kickboxing and MMA. Train where the champions train. So a few more little tidbits here. As I'm fond of saying, if you're listening to this podcast, there are a few other podcasts I'd like to tell you about that uh, are along the same lines that I'm sure you'll like. Uh, one of them is really the guy who started it all as far as the enforcer-based podcasting, and that is my friend Darren in Saskatoon. He is the Fourth Line Voice podcast. Uh, his latest episode was uh, a very ranty episode, but an accurate ranty episode, and I, I thought it was fantastic. Uh, Darren and I agree on most things so on the stuff he ranted about uh i agreed if not on everything most of it but i would think i agreed on everything i listened to it uh days ago uh and uh after his extended rant he had uh ken reed uh he is i believe a sports net which is a if you're not in canada it's a sports network up in canada i think tsn is the espn of canada and Sportsnet is a competitor uh ken does a, he's an author he does a lot of books on hockey cards and he he's done a few i mean he has probably four books maybe three or four books uh but but ken is very widely known up in canada and uh he's he does a lot of stuff with terry ryan so uh, i'm really not doing him justice here but it was a great interview uh ken's a great guy i don't know him personally but his interviews are always very entertaining and uh darren has two episodes a week although i i'm not sure how it's going to work out one episode which is the weekend episode is generally a classic episode from when he had his own website and then he does a midweek episode, which is a new episode. But I we discussed it this week. He's running out of classic episodes. So um, check those out while they're there. You could always go back in the archives and check them out also. But uh, definitely check out Fourth Line Voice on the Hockey Podcast Network. Also, Darren has a YouTube channel, the Fourth Line Voice YouTube channel. If you have ever watched a hockey fight on YouTube, chances are it was on the Fourth Line Voice YouTube channel. Now, the next podcast is the Bucket Drop Podcast with my friend Bobby Longgrass, who is taking the rest of the year off. Now, Bobby has plenty of shows in his archives, and actually we discussed this week, I, I had mentioned on one of my other shows that he had done an episode in French with someone that I really wanted to listen to, and I didn't know that he had actually translated it, so I have to go back and listen to that one. Uh, Bobby is off for the rest of the year. He will be back in 2021, so you have ample opportunity 
to check out the Bucket Drop podcast on your platform and uh, check out his archives. Good stuff. He's an he's an aspiring rapper, and um, he has some he has some very good guests. If I could remember, I don't want to mix up the guests on the three shows that I'm helping promote here, so I'm not going to say any names. Uh, I've been on his show a couple of times. That one I know for sure, but definitely check it out. The other thing, uh, Bobby had a minor Twitter disagreement with uh, the podcast host of the next show I'm going to say. Normally, this is where I would direct you to Bobby's Twitter feed, which used to be at the bucket drop, and I'm not sure it's still going. I have no idea, but Bobby was selling bucket drop hats, and the profits were going to help child abuse survivors. So this is normally where I would tell you to check out his Twitter feed, and um, I don't know what's going on with that. So just keep an eye out for that because uh, he was selling hats for a very good cause, and, and I'd hate for people to not have the opportunity to uh, purchase hats and have, uh, you know, have the money go to that charity. So just keep an eye out for his Twitter handle. If he gets that account back up and running at the bucket drop, but whether he does or he doesn't check out, uh, his, his show, the bucket drop podcast, uh, catch up on all the episodes before he comes back in 2021. And finally, the five for fighting podcast with Alec Olin Salen. Alan took some time off. He was moving, but I believe he has recorded a new episode. He was on Twitter last night, uh, posted a picture of his setup and uh, I believe his comment was something about, let's see if I remember what I'm doing here or remember how to do this. And me being the genius that I am put two and two together and said, oh, looks like he might be recording a new episode. So uh, so keep an eye out for that. Uh, he's had some very good guests. He's taken some time off his last episode. Like I said, for the last few weeks, actually, was uh, AJ Galante, the former general manager of the Danbury Trashers. And if you're a hockey fight fan, you know damn well who the Danbury Trashers were. So definitely go back and check that out and check out all his old episodes. Some really good stuff there. And uh, Alec also runs two pages on Facebook. Uh, one is the Enforcer Appreciation page. He's He's been doing that now, I think, over a year. There's probably 12, 13,000 members on that one. Uh, that's always a good time. I don't post too much on there, but I'm on there every day as a lurker, I guess. Is that what I would be? Um, also, he started a QSPHL slash LNAH jersey and equipment collectors page. So that's just started up. And, uh, you know, I'm a I'm a jersey geek and um, game used, game worn geek. So I love that stuff. So I, I'm a member and I would encourage you to check that out, too. So what's going on lately? Well, I don't know if you're aware of this, but it's a little over two weeks until the elections here in the U.S. I know you probably haven't heard anything about it or seen anything about it on social media or in any place you've gone. I mean, Jesus, this is, uh, it's a little bananas down here. I mean, it's it's crazy. I, I never remember, I'm, I'm 50, so I've been alive for a lot of elections and I've, I, I have no recollection of being bombarded with this stuff like they are bombarding everybody with this year and and everybody knows the reason why they're doing it uh some of the commercials are very dramatic vote like your life depends on it i mean wow i don't know i i just um you know i i always you know i always say they're they're really when when someone is going overboard with stuff just be careful who you wake up on the side that you're not on and um you know I'm not telling you to vote. I'm not telling you not to vote. And I sure as hell am not telling you who to vote for. What I will say is chances are, if you are voting, 
none of the nonsense that has gone on in the last year or so has changed your mind about who you're voting for. And I wish that the social media people and these commercials and these people that are pushing and pushing and pushing to vote would understand that they're not changing anyone's minds. It's just unbelievable to me that they're still going to do this, but this is not a political based show. So anyway, like I said, it's a little over two weeks. Vote. Don't vote. It's your right. It's your right. Do it. Don't do it. Whatever. Uh, just a reminder, uh, because now apparently the numbers for the COVID are spiking. And uh, I, I saw a lot of people predict that the numbers would go up near election day. Again, I don't know if people consider those people conspiracy theorists, but a lot of what they said is coming true. And there are people on social media that are constantly telling you to wear a damn mask. And you know what? Again, similar to the political stuff where you can pound it into people's heads and they're not listening. This has been going on now for several months. And you telling people to wear a damn mask is not going to make them wear a mask. They're either wearing it or they're not wearing it. So save your breath, save your keystrokes. Nobody's listening. People are wearing a mask or they're not wearing it. So you don't need to lecture them. Honestly, I mean, that's just my opinion. I see it a hundred times a day on social media. I wear a mask because I have to. If I want to go get a cup of coffee, I need to wear a mask. If I need to go anywhere here in New York State, I need to wear a mask. You know. I hate it. I and it's and you know what? For those people that like to lecture people, it's okay to hate wearing a mask. It's okay to not want to call it the new normal. I can't stand it, but I do it. It's not a big deal to me to do it. It's annoying, but I do it. I, I want to go get coffee. I want to go get a sandwich or whatever. If I want to go buy something, I need to wear it. And yeah, I do it. It sucks. I don't complain about it. But it's just annoying hearing, you know, hearing and seeing people lecture other people about wearing a mask. Like I said, at this point, you're wearing a mask or you're not wearing a mask. And hearing someone telling you to wear a mask is probably just going to make you angry. So just another public service announcement. Nobody, nobody wants to hear you tell them to wear a mask. That's it. So uh, a little more hockey things here. So as you know, I provide you the weekly Matt Martin watch. The Matt Martin update. There is no update from this past week, which is both good and bad. It's good because the rumors are that uh, Matt Martin is going to sign potentially for two years, and uh, they're just waiting to announce a couple of other signings before they announce the Matt Martin signing. Why, I don't know. But again, these are smarter people than I. Lou Lamarillo certainly knows what he's doing, and um, who knows? But that is the rumor. Nothing has changed about that Matt Martin rumor, so that's a good thing. And the other good thing is he hasn't signed with anybody else. So uh, all signs are pointing to Matt Martin returning to where he belongs here on Long Island. It's just a matter of dotting the I's, crossing the T's, and getting it going. So uh, like I said, it appears that all news is good news when there is news. There just hasn't been any lately. Uh, as I mentioned. Uh, happy birthday to Wendell Clark, which is today, October 25th. You might be listening to this on the 26th, so then it was yesterday, but you'll figure it out. Wendell's a legend, and I said the worst part, if there is a bad part about Wendell Clark being an Islander, is that the year he was an Islander, he had to wear that ridiculous fucking fisherman logo. It's disgraceful. There's not a single picture of Wendell Clark in an Islander uniform without that awful logo, and uh, that's just a disgrace. That's a damn disgrace, but uh, happy birthday to Mr. Clark. Uh, legend. Uh, everybody thinks he's a legend, and if you don't think he's a legend, you're probably an analytics person. So, 
but happy birthday, Mr. Clark. I would like to thank publicly my friends, Sean and Stacy Byram. Um, I met Sean many, many years ago, and we discussed that in the episode that I had him on. And uh, I received a very nice package this week with game-used gloves, and I was able to photo match them to his short stint with the Islanders. So I imagine he wore these gloves with, with – well, I know he wore the gloves with the Islanders because they matched up with the photos. I imagine he also wore these in Capital District. Uh, and they haven't been worn, as far as I know, for decades, and they still had a little bit of a faint smell in them. So uh, most people are probably uh, – you know, probably recoil when they hear that. But, you know, again, for, for game worn, game used geek like myself, the faint smell, while I wouldn't want it as an air freshener, it just kind of gives you that little bit of, uh, all right, excellent. You know, I don't know. It just adds to, uh, more of the authenticity to it. But thank you very much to Sean and Stacy for helping me out there. It means the world to me. And, uh, it's great. I have been looking for Sean Byram gear for decades and I have never found anything. And actually the more I think about it, I want to kick myself why I never got a stick from him back in the day when I met him in capital district will forever haunt me the well forever haunt the collector in me. But, uh, I am always looking for Sean Byram gear and uh, I have a long list of players that I'm looking for stuff of. So it was very nice to cross Sean Byram gloves off the list. Thank you for your generosity, Mr. And Mrs. Byram. And, Last thing I will say, my guest today is Blair Riley, and you may or may not know who Blair Riley is, and the reason why uh, I chose Blair Riley, first of all, I thought he'd have a great story, and also, um, you know, when I think in the episode where I interviewed John Forsland, I had said, the old show Rinkside is where I really developed a love for the minor leagues, and um, I love I love minor league hockey. I mean, obviously... Every league in hockey right now has sort of gone the way of the NHL where it's a lot less physical. But growing up on the sport, I loved the minors. I loved rinkside. I loved watching that show. It introduced me to a lot of players before they were in the NHL. And it really got me addicted to the American League. And, uh, you know, then as, as you go on and like I did, like a lot of people did collect fight tapes and you get minor league fight tapes and junior fight tapes. And then eventually you start driving and you get to go to these minor league arenas. Um, I really developed a passion for the minors. And I think part of it is the respect that I have for the players that, um, either got a cup of coffee in the NHL or never made it to the NHL because when you're in the NHL, you know, even back, even back then, you're making good money compared to the average person. Now forget about it. You're making lights out money. And the guys in the minors are really doing it for the love of the game because you you could play 10, 15 years in the minors and, and make a nice salary, but you're not getting rich off it. And you might be working in the off season and you're definitely working once you retire. And I, I think that's part of the reason why I love minor leagues and in, in both hockey and baseball is you're doing it because you love it and you're doing it because this is your opportunity to play the game for as long as you can. And, um, you know, when, when, uh, I became, I, I first be- knew about Blair Riley when he, uh, when he got, uh, signed to Bridgeport and that was, let's see in 2011, 12. And then, you know, he played for two seasons. He went his, he went his own way, he went to, um, St. John's and Stockton. And then he ended up in Belfast and he was playing with a friend of mine, Matt Nickerson. So, uh, and all, we touch on all this in there. And I always knew that Blair, like I say in the interview, he's more of a power forward, but he definitely didn't mind dropping gloves at all. 
So he was always a guy that I kind of kept an eye on. And similar to when uh, I had Mike Dalhusen on, I, I, you know, I have a list of guys that I'd love to get on the show. And I said, you know what? Blair's on uh, social media. Let me reach out to him. And he agreed to come on and he did. And um, if you're not familiar with him, let me just give you, because I'm, I'm assuming a lot of you, uh, a lot of you that are listening that are not necessarily Islander fans may have heard of Blair because he has a pretty extensive resume. But if you're strictly an Islander fan that doesn't follow the minors, you may not be too familiar with Blair. But let me tell you about his two seasons in Bridgeport. So his first season in Bridgeport was 2011-12. He was fifth on the team at penalty minutes with 77, okay? And here's the guys he was on the team with, and we touch on this. Uh, Michael Haley, Brett Gallant, Trevor Gillies, Stephen Alexi, Ben Olsen. Uh, these are all tough players. And Blair Riley was second on the team in majors with 11. Michael Haley led the team with 13. Um, and Blair has some really good stories about these guys. Uh, not necessarily stories, but his thoughts on these guys like Michael Haley and Galley and Trevor Gillies and Ben Olsen. Uh, you know, these are all legitimate killers. And this was all on one team. And this was the team that uh, Blair played on his first year at Bridgeport. And do yourself a favor, and I, I, I touch on this in the interview, Go to hockeyfights.com and check out his his 2011-12 season fight-wise. He had an amazing year fighting this year. And like I said, with the team he played on, this was a pretty tough team. Pro had to be one of the top two toughest teams in the league that year. And Blair was not out of place at all. Uh, like I said, playing with the likes of Gillies and Galley and, and Michael Haley and Ben Olsen. Um, definitely fit right in. And this season... From the research that I, did, I that I did for this interview, I think this was his best season as far as fighting goes. And then you jump to the next season, and this was after that after that first season with Bridgeport, the Islanders signed him to a two way deal. That first year he was just under contract to Bridgeport. Islanders liked what they saw, signed him to a two way deal. He spent the entire season in Bridgeport, and he actually had a, a whole new cast of characters, with the exception of Brett Gallant. Uh, you know partners in crime, so to speak, as far as enforcers go. Uh, but this year in 2012-13, he had 165 penalty minutes, which placed him third. But here's the stat. Here's the stat, and and he touched on this. Um, he had 21 fights that year in 2012-13, and that was his career high. And that placed him third on the team behind Brett Gallant and Nathan McIver. Galley had 26, McIver had 25, and Blair had 21. And uh, again, a very, very tough team. Uh, his two years in Bridgeport were great for fight fans like myself, fight fans like you. Um, so like I said, if you're a fan of the enforcers, you're a fan of the fighters, you're a fan of the physical players, I'm sure you know who Blair Riley is. If you're someone who only follows the Islanders, doesn't pay too much attention to the minors, to juniors, you may not know. But what I can promise you is this. Blair was an amazing interview. And I am really grateful for his time. And I know for sure, if you stay tuned and you listen to this, you're going to love it. So, um, again, I, you know, like some people are fond of saying, you didn't come here to listen to me. But, I mean, uh, maybe a little bit. I mean, obviously, Blair's the star of the show today. But, you know, I got to set him up a little bit. But, uh, anyway, enough of me yapping. It's been almost 26 minutes. Here we go with Blair Riley. 
Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to introduce to you someone who you may not be too familiar with if you only follow the New York Islanders, if you're not uh, too keen on uh, Bridgeport or uh, some of the hockey overseas or college hockey. Uh, I might be uh, bringing this gentleman to your attention for the very first time, and it's my pleasure to do so. Uh, he's a guy who I followed a little bit since he was with Bridgeport. And, uh, you know, when he went overseas to play in the um, UK League, because we have mutual friends over there, which we'll get to later. But uh, it's my pleasure to introduce you to Blair Riley. And Blair, how, how's it going tonight? Yeah, good. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate it. Uh, appreciate you taking the time and uh, doing a little look back on some of uh, some of the fonder years I had uh, starting out my pro career in, in Bridgeport um, and kind of with the Islanders organization. It was a, it was a good time for me. So uh, this will be kind of a cool experience to, to think back on, on some of the guys I played with and, and some of the moments we had there. Well, since I'm not sure if you've ever listened to any of the episodes I have, I, I've recorded already, we're going to start a little bit before Bridgeport. We're going to kind of timeline your career, uh, but obviously a lot of the focus will be on your time with Bridgeport because, uh, like this, like I said, this is an Islander, really an Islander-based podcast, and some of the names you played with in Bridgeport people will be familiar with, but I, I'm really interested in, in your entire career. So if you're ready to go, I'll start firing away. Yeah, let's go. Okay, so you were born in Chase, British Columbia, and the first question I always ask everybody is, um, when I was younger and I was playing street hockey here in, on Long Island or in, in Queens where I was born, uh, I was always Bobby Nystrom, I was always Clark Gillies, so if I had a time machine and I can go back to see a young Blair Riley skating on the ponds of uh, British Columbia, who was Blair Riley as a kid? Um, well, I wouldn't say that I, I would have been anything like him but i was a canuck fan growing up uh so it was pavel bury mm -hmm. um yeah the 94 uh canuck run when they lost the finals in the rangers um that was kind of my first real memory of, of kind of falling in love with the game so uh you know i, I wasn't skating anything like pavel bury but that's kind of who i grew up idolizing and uh you know i had his poster on on my wall and uh, just loved watching the guy play. He was a phenomenal talent, and uh, you know, it's kind of he's come kind of someone that I wish I could watch like now. And now that I kind of got a better appreciation for the game, because he was uh, he was probably a little bit ahead of his time the way he kind of skated and um, you know some of the things he did offensively. So it would be kind of cool to see him play in like the current game now. Playing the game right now with no red line and stuff like that. I, I mean, he was pretty unstoppable when he played. Now I don't. I don't think anyone could touch him nowadays. Yeah, like he still he still actually competed hard, which was I think he didn't get enough credit for. But yeah, the way that um, the game's called now with like no holding and uh, no interference, he he would be something pretty special to watch right now. So you know, if you could have probably even anyone from the '90s that that you could see play now, I think he'd probably be the choice for a lot of people, even even non Canuck fans. Well, it's definitely a good choice. And, and just for the record, I know you say you didn't really play like him. I did not play like Clark Gillies or Bob Nystrom. And uh, if I don't know if you caught it, but I said street hockey because I can barely skate now, and I definitely couldn't skate back then. So uh, it was just my, my you know, fanboy. I love those guys. So uh, so you're you're closer to Pavel Burry than I'm closer uh, to Gillies or Nystrom. So, you know. <laughs> so we're going to jump ahead uh, to 2000. And you were drafted uh, by 
the Prince George Cougars in the ninth round, 158th overall. Did you reach to go to any training camps with the Cougars? Uh, yeah, I did. Um, I went, the Western League does uh, the draft pretty young. I, I was I was still 14, I think, uh, when I was drafted. I was, I was a late birthday. Uh, so I went to camp, I think, the following year as a 15-year-old. Um, did my first camp there. Um, and then the following year as it would have been my 16 year old season. I was, I was looking to play uh, tier two. So in the BC league, just for that year of development. Um, and so I, I couldn't really go to both camps. I kind of had to choose one or the other. I, I wasn't planning on, on moving up to Prince George and playing in the Western league. I didn't think I was ready to, to play there yet. Um, and the, the Cougars didn't really like that, actually. They they kind of were disappointed in me, and um, they figured from that point on I'd made my decision to go to go to the Beast League and, and college, which wasn't necessarily true. I, I was just kind of trying to keep my options open. Um, and I, I just thought that, you know, I, I was going to play a little bit closer to home at that age uh, and try to play in the BC League. So they, it, it wasn't like I was making a decision, but... Um, they kind of made the decision for me. They they pulled me off their protected list, and <laughs> uh, you know I ended up playing midget back home in Kansas that year, and then went on VC League after that. And uh, you started with uh, Merritt Centennials, and uh, that first year that you played there, I, I see that you played 19 games. So did you start the year somewhere else, and then was it like a, a call up or a promotion to Merritt, or that season you just ended up playing the 19 games? Uh, no, I, I started that season. Um, I tried out for the Salmon Arm Silverbacks, which at the time, um, Travis Zajac was there. He was the, kind of the big draw in town, uh, and I was one of the last cuts there. Uh, so I ended up going to their affiliate team, which is in Sycamore, so that's a, that's a junior B team. Um, and it seemed, like, it seemed like a good fit at the time, but it, it didn't work out. So uh, the GM ended up partway through the, you know, I think maybe my – Maybe four weeks in, they they were just going to outright release me. Uh, and another team in the Junior B League picked me up. Um, so I went out there, and I ended up playing pretty well for them. And halfway through the season, I, I got the call up to Merritt, and that's where I ended up finishing up the season. So, no, it wasn't like a, it wasn't a straight line move for me. It wasn't, I guess it wasn't easy at that time. I was still trying to kind of find my way and uh i guess at that age you're you're really moving away from f home for the first time and kind of figuring your life out a bit too so i i had a lot going on on that side and and hockey was i mean it was my main focus but i was just tr still trying to kind of figure things out um you know as a player but also as a as a young kid and it looks like the the following season at least on the hockey end, you you had it figured out. Uh, you put up numbers. You played 60 games. You had 64 points. You had 214 penalty minutes. So uh, because you got a little bit of a taste of it in the season before in the BCHL, uh, were you a little more comfortable that season going in? Because your numbers would say that you were very comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think I almost came back almost overconfident really i i felt um i felt like i i should have been there the whole year before and i, I really kind of came back um after getting my 
feet wet. Uh, I, I felt like I, I really should have been there. And I, I just kind of played with a bit of a chip on my shoulder for that season. And, um, yeah, I think, you know, the first half of the season, I, I still was a young kid. I, I was still just 17 turning 18 in uh, November. Um, so I ended up putting up some pretty good numbers towards the second half. But I remember that first half of the year, I, I kind of came in there and I, I was, I was maybe expecting to, to go in and, and dominate the league where, you know, it wasn't just going to be the case like that. I, I still had to earn everything. I was still a, a young kid age-wise, and I was still technically a rookie coming in. So I still had to earn my place within my team and in the league. So, you know, it, it turned out being a good year for me. But I remember that first half of the year was, you know, it was actually quite difficult for me. Was the play in the, the BCHL, did it sort of mirror the Western League at the time where everybody kind of knows, especially the people that have listened to my show, I've interviewed a lot of former Western Leaguers, and, uh, you know, it certainly was, uh, you know, the Wild West at times, and the Western League is generally regarded, and rightly so, as the toughest of the junior leagues. And so would the BCHL sort of mirror that style of play because uh, – that season, you had 214 penalty minutes, which placed you second on the team uh, behind a, uh, a gentleman named Steve Sankey. And you also played with a guy that year, Michael Wanchuk. So uh, did you guys have a physical team, and did you need a physical team in that league? Uh, yeah, we did. Um, I, the year before, like when I first went up, uh, halfway through that year, I remember that was probably – it was probably one of the tougher teams I've, I've seen in, in the BC league for sure. Um, but it was kind of right around that time that, um, you know, leagues were starting to crack down a little bit more. They were starting to bring in some uh, game misconducts after a certain amount of fights. Um, and it was kind of right, right in that era. Um, but, you know, definitely my first couple years in Merritt, we had, we had some super tough players and, and so did other teams in the league. And actually some of the kind of like what you saw towards the end of, you know, some of the real enforcer eras in the NHL where those guys were kind of ended up going into the American league and the American league was kind of turning into like the, the really tough league that was happening a little bit because the, the Western league was kind of transforming a bit. And some of those, you know, 19, 20 year old tough guys were kind of getting, um, pushed out of that league a little bit. So they were kind of coming to finish their careers in the BC league. So you'd see that a little bit with, with some of the guys towards, towards the end of my time playing there. Um, but I, I definitely more so remember the Western league when I was growing up, um, watching the games, countless Blazers we'd go watch, um, you know, they had some super, super tough guys and, oh, yeah. You know, Scott Parker would be playing in Kelowna and Colt Nor was in Kamloops. Um, you know, some of these guys you'd watch and, uh, you know, it was, it was a different era even from just the time that I played. Yeah. Now, uh, am I mistaken? And again, my math may be off, but was, uh, after this season in merit, was, was this the first time you were eligible to be drafted into the NHL or was it the following season? Um, it would have been, yeah, it would have been that season in, in merit when I played the, the full 60 games, I believe. Um, cause I think, I think the, the birth, uh, date cutoffs in September or October mm -hmm. or something. So I, I would have been, I would have been that year. Uh, my, would have been my 18 year old season. Um, I had, you know, I had a, 
a few few teams come out and watch the games. Mm-hmm. Um, Merritt's kind of, you know, we're it, it was a small smaller town, so it, it's it's not a heavily recruited uh, team. You know, some of the teams that down in the lower mainland, it's a lot easier for uh, teams to kind of scout down there. They they would be down watching, you know, maybe a Vancouver Giants game, and it's easy to to pop down to to Chilliwack or, or South Surrey, where a lot of those those leagues are our teams are a lot closer together so we wouldn't see a ton of traffic but um yeah i mean i i think i was on the radar i just just wasn't quite there <laughs> yeah that's all right there are plenty of guys uh, who were never drafted that had successful careers uh, wayne gretzky was never drafted so uh you know you're in good company <laughs> you're, you're putting me some weird company there <laughs> just trying to pump your tires a little bit <laughs> Yeah, yeah you, I'm sure there's some other guys that uh, were drafted that followed a similar career path other than Wayno. Well, maybe a few, but uh, yeah. But I digress. So now the following season, um, it's listed two different ways on, on a couple different sites. Did you start the year in Merritt and uh, moved on to, uh, I think it's Nanaimo. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Um, oh, no. or, or did you start the whole season? Did you play the whole season with the Clippers? Uh, no, I was I was with Merritt um, right until um, it was about eleven fifty nine on the trade deadline. Me and um, Bill Vandermeer, who is actually you know one of the famous Vandermeer brothers, me yep. and him both um, got put in a package trade and, and traded up to Nanaimo, who were uh, they were I think maybe top the top team or one of the top five teams in all of Canada for the junior A at that time. Um, and, you know, we were in merit. We were maybe going to make the playoffs. We were, we were about a 500 team. Um, so Nanaimo, you know, kind of put a package together um, to bring me and Bill into Nanaimo and um, into what was a really good team. And, you know, we were kind of brought in hopefully to, to give them a chance to, to go and, and make a push for really the, the at that time they were we were thinking certainly to um, compete for definitely the BC League uh, and hopefully for the Royal Bank at the time, um, but it, it was kind of weird, you know. It was probably what I guess fifteen years later I ended up playing with uh, Bill's brother uh, Jim in Belfast, and I think probably uh, I think if you talk to 10 hockey players that played professionally. I'm sure, you know, probably five out of the 10 would have played with at least one of the Vandermeer brothers on their path somewhere along the way. So they're, they're a great hockey family. And, uh, it was pretty cool to, to play with Bill and junior and then end up getting, getting to play with Jim later on. Yeah. that's Yeah. I mean, everybody, I would imagine most people that are listening to this are familiar with at least a few of the Vandermeer. So, uh, I was fortunate enough. I met, uh, Pete, I lived in Philly for a few years and I was there when, uh, when he took over for Steve McLaren with the Phantoms and, uh, really great guy. And, uh, you know, I'm sure the, and he's, Pete's done a few other podcasts and everything. We, you know, he's just uh, really well-spoken. He's got a great sense of humor and I'm sure that uh, the whole family's like that. And they're, they're tough as nails anyway. So, uh, but I, I think that speaks to how, how uh, long of a career you had that uh, you played with one as a, as a teenager. And then you finished up uh, towards the end of your career playing uh, with Jimmy. Well, and then in, in the middle, in my rookie year in Vegas, I think it was, I think it was Pete's last year he was playing 
Um, I remember, <laughs> I think you told the story on Spitting Chicklets, actually. Um, I was in the penalty box at the time, and I remember he he gotten a bit of a, uh, a tie-up with our captain. He ended up cross-checking him, and then he just sheds his gloves and starts feeding them bomb <laughs> while he's on the ice. And the refs kind of pull him off, get him kicked out, and on the way out, he's you know, making a full scene and he whips his helmet back across the ice. And I think he got like 10 or 15 games. I think, I think he said that that was, that was it. He got banished from, from the league. And that was the end of it. So there you go. Pistol Pete. My, my, the way I explain uh, Pete to people who don't necessarily know too much about him is um, when the Phantoms came into existence, their first heavyweight is a, is a legend, Frank by Lois. And when he moved on to Hershey, they replaced him with Steve McLaren, who, again, another guy tough as nails and probably the perfect guy to re- replace Frank. They're different kind of personalities, but, you know, one is it's a toss up who's tougher than the other. And I actually remember saying I, I wouldn't want to be the guy that has to come in and replace McLaren, who replaced by Lois. And, and it was actually Pete. And he did an amazing job, didn't miss a beat. And again, you have three different personality types there. But three guys tough as nails playing in a city that embraces toughness. So that's usually how I how I explain uh, Pete to people who don't know him is that he he took over a job in a city that really embraces the enforcers and he followed two pretty legendary guys and he didn't even his heart rate probably didn't go up at all. Yeah, and the I guess the the neat thing between Bill and I never played with Pete, but um, Bill was like a a skilled offensive forward. And, you know, Jim and Pete were tough as nails, but Jim was um, a very casual, humble guy off the ice, um, you know, just loved having a beer and, and a chit chat. And then, he'd, you know, he'd go out and just punch someone's lights out. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> see, you know, there's different guys like that that can just turn it on and yeah. um, almost turn into an alter ego. But Jim... Jim was uh, calm as could be off the ice. Well, before we leave Nanaimo, I just want to make a point to tell everybody that the following year you had a monster season. You had uh, 79 points in 59 games. You were the MVP of the team. But I was watching some videos, and I saw that you're you're admittedly someone who has a sweet tooth, as am I. And uh, I've actually tasted uh, Nanaimo bars from that were sent to me from friends of mine that are uh, are out there, out west. And they're amazing. So uh, for someone with a sweet tooth, was that a favorite treat of yours back in the day? Or were you always a Snickers guy? Um, I, you know what? I I wasn't huge into Nanaimo bars at the time. I I guess I liked them. But they, it wasn't <laughs> like, you know, it was just yeah. whatever. But mm-hmm. I, I think now I have a bigger appreciation for them. But <laughs> it, it's, um, it was a, a cool place to play. Yeah. Um, you know, it was right at Port City on Vancouver Island. Uh, so we ferried a lot of the time. So we'd be about a two-hour ferry ride over to Vancouver. And and then we'd kind of bust from there for the most part. But uh gives you a chance to, you know, we'd play a lot of cards on the boat, get out, walk around. And, you know, you could have a little bit of a stretch instead of, you know, some of the other teams that have long bus rides. You just sit on the bus for 10, 12 hours. Yeah. You know, we, we got a good chance to 
cruise around and it's a beautiful place. The, yeah. the islands, you know, it's really a phenomenal spot. I, I guess I didn't have a full appreciation for it living there at the time. And so I kind of moved around a bit and, and got to see some other parts of the world and it just kind of gave me a bigger appreciation for, for that area. I think a lot, I think every one of us, if we go back to the age we were at that point that you were, uh, I don't, you know, you don't really get a full appreciation for things until you're a little bit older and you have those other life experiences. So I'm sure you're not alone in that respect. Um, what led to your decision to go to college? And, uh, was that the path that, that, that you always wanted to go? But at that point, after that, uh, last season in Nanaimo, were you set on going to college and, uh, was Ferris state your first choice? Uh, well, it was my only choice. <laughs> okay. Well, that is my next question. Uh, were there other colleges involved? Yeah. So I guess, uh, it was my first choice as well. <laughs> uh, like I said, I guess uh, when Prince George kind of pulled me off their protected list, um, I started leaning more towards junior A and when I had a little bit of success early on in that league, um, and I was kind of on the radar of the NCAA it just kind of, it just made more sense for me. Um, you know, my parents were big supporters of getting an education, um, whether that was through hockey or outside of it. Um, I was, I was more focused on hockey and it seemed like, um, if I could get a scholarship that was going to give me four more years to play. And that just kind of gave me a good chance to, to play, play hockey and, uh, you know, move to the States and, and try a whole, whole different life. And, um, as I kind of kept going along in the BC league, I was doing pretty well. And, um, you know, I was getting a bit of interest. Um, and then really I, I got into my 20 year old season and I, I felt like, you know, my 19 year old year, I, I did really well. And I, I had some teams calling, I had some teams interested, but no one had given me an offer. And then I was, you know, I was into the second half of my 20-year-old season, I, and the clock was ticking a bit. Um, you know, there were some teams that were, were still kind of checking in, and, and there was some interest, it seemed like. Um, and then um, Coach Derek Lalonde, who actually just was an assistant coach with Tampa, the one the Stanley Cup, was um, the associate coach at Ferris State at the time. He came out... Um, you know, watched a couple of my games and they offered me after that weekend. And I just, you know, I talked to my parents and I just said, you know what, this is, this is it. I, I, I got to take this. They, they play in a great division. They play with Michigan, Michigan state, you know, Ohio state, Miami, Ohio at the time. I was just looking, I didn't know a whole lot about it. I never even took a flight out. I didn't, I didn't even actually see the campus or anything. I just said, you know what, I'm, let's do it. I'm, uh, you know, I just jumped at it and, um, you know, it was my, <laughs> my first option. Maybe I could, you know, checked in with some other teams and, and, you know, looked around a bit, but I, I just felt like it was, it was kind of the, the place that wanted me. And I, I felt like it was going to work out. How did you adapt? Obviously, you know, some people might say hockey's hockey, but everybody knows that, uh, uh, junior hockey, uh, you know, even pro hockey and college hockey are, are completely different games. Uh, how did you adapt, especially your freshman year? How did you adapt to the, the new style of play in college? Um, it was a struggle. 
um, yeah, for sure, it was a struggle to, you know, to, to get used to, well, for one, playing with a full face shield on. Um, the game changes a bit. Uh, I was used to, in junior, um, you know, when I had, I had a couple hundred penalty minutes my 18-year-old year, after that, it, it kind of opened up a lot of room for me. Um, you know, when you get to college, you, I didn't really have that advantage anymore where I, I felt like my physical play and, um, you know, the threat of me fighting, it was kind of taken away from me. So I kind of had to, I kind of had to learn more so how to, how to play again. Not, you know, not that I wasn't playing in, in the BC league, but that was kind of my only avenue, um, you know, where you get in there and um, some of these guys are, you know, they're 23, 24 years old now. Um, some of the seniors, uh, it's tough as a freshman just to, just to get on the power play or even just to get in the lineup. So I, I played the majority of the games, um, didn't, didn't do too well offensively, um, you know, but I was, I was improving and I was learning the game the whole time. And I felt like I was, I was on the right path the whole time. I, I never felt like, I never felt like the game was going to be too much for me to handle. I felt like I was going to get there eventually once, you know, I, once I had my time to develop and, uh, you know, I moved up in classes and we graduated some players. I, I knew my time would come eventually. Uh, but, you know, there were some moments that, you know, we were playing against Michigan who I think they had, um, they had Jack Johnson and uh, Cogliano was on their power play and TJ Hensick. I think he had like 200 points over his four years. Like they had, they had legit first rounders that were going to the NHL that year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was some nights that, you know, we looked like we were outclassed significantly. Um, and then by the time, you know, my junior and senior years roll around, it felt like we were on par with them. So that was, that was pretty cool to see the growth. Well, um, you also grew from your freshman to sophomore year because your numbers improved. And, uh, I, you know, there wasn't a ton of material out there for me to uh, find on you from your, your uh, college years. But for your second year, it seemed like you grew more comfortable. You had 24 points in 36 games, uh, 90 penalty minutes in college, which, you know, may as well be 250 in the pros. Um, you led the team in penalty minutes. You were third on the team in scoring. So I imagine that you did get a little more comfortable, similar to what we discussed in, uh, during your time in merit, where you played those 19 games. And then the next year you played a full season where you were more comfortable. Was this a similar situation that from your freshman year to your sophomore year, you felt more comfortable with the college game? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think at that, at Christmas time, again, I was having a tough time. I, I think I had like maybe three points or, or three goals. So from the second half, I, you know, if I had put up a full season like I did in the second half, that would have been a phenomenal year. But I felt like, um, you know, I, I was starting to really figure the game out. And our team was really, was really growing a lot too. Like we had a, we had a pretty big freshman class the year behind me. And um, it took them a little bit to kind of get going. But, you know, once we, once we found our way and uh, started getting some confidence, we, we actually felt like we were, we were one of the better teams there. And I, I think that year we lost to Notre Dame in the playoffs in uh, best of three series. We lost in the third game. I think we lost one nothing or something. Um, 
you know, so we were right there. And for for Ferris State to be competing with, you know, Notre Dame, Michigan, like those teams had significantly bigger budgets, you know, recruiting top-end talent, like, you know, they're turning away top-end players, um, where we were just kind of, we all kind of felt like we were a hard hat group. Like all the, all the guys felt like we were, you know, I don't want to say cast offs, but mm-hmm. we felt like we had to really prove ourselves each and every one of us. And that kind of made us a pretty good team as, um, as we all kind of had that same mentality when we were, we were playing against those top end players that we were going to go show them that we were, we were legit too. And, you know, we didn't really give a fuck that they were draft picks and shit. We were just going to, we're going to go play our game and, and then we're going to go party after and have a fucking good time. <laughs> and I, you know, from, from the research I've done on you, you're, you're the consummate pro, you're the consummate team player. So I'm sure individual awards are, are not super important to you, but I, I do want to point out that that season uh, you did win the uh, Steve Bononis Memorial uh, most improved player award. That's a Ferris state award. And you also were acknowledged uh, as a Ferris state university Dean's academic award honoree. So those are, I mean, I guess the uh, first award kind of speaks to uh, what you were saying about how you had a better second half. I guess that if you count your freshman year and the beginning of your sophomore year, and then you kind of, picked it up a lot in the second half that would uh sort of talk about the most improved player and then uh the academic award is always something good to have uh, in your back pocket yeah i guess I, I didn't even, <laughs> uh, <laughs> well the most improved player was that was kind of a toss-up like how bad did you suck in the beginning <laughs> yeah it's the way you look at it okay yeah <laughs> i mean i guess it was it was where where'd you start and where'd you end up but um the the dean's award i know my parents were proud about it they like i said they were <clears throat> they were big to uh to get me to go to the college route and they didn't want it just to be you know they didn't want me just going there and taking a bunch of you know throwaway classes where it was just going to be meaningless um not that, to say that i didn't have a few of those but yeah. you know i felt when i was taking my business classes and um, getting back into, into learning. Um, I, I tried to take it seriously. Uh, it, you know, it was tough at times for any young kid that's going to university, you know, 20, 21 years old. It's tough to, to balance everything. Uh, you know, you want to have fun in your social life. And, you know, we had hockey that was, you know, our primary focus, whether the NCAA wants to admit it or not, the majority of division one athletes are there because of the sports. They're not necessarily there for, for the academics. So, um, I felt like I tried, I tried for the most part to take it seriously. Um, and I'll say this now looking back on, especially as I retired and, and started looking at, transitioning and looking at other opportunities in the business world i'm i'm super thankful that i that i went the college route and and did pick up some you know life skills and and stuff along the way that um some employers were actually looking into and interested in and having on board with their with their organizations outside of hockey so your sophomore year, you had 90 penalty minutes. Your junior year, you had 70 penalty minutes. And your senior year, you had 58. 
Uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but you're eighth all time in school history and penalty minutes with 262 penalty minutes. I'm not sure if you knew that or not. I didn't know. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, again, like I said, with changing the juniors, everyone's wearing face masks. So it wasn't like um, I was getting in a bunch of scraps. Like I, I know I got kicked out for um, throwing some punches, but I don't think I should have been doing it. Like it wasn't, it wasn't really benefiting anyone, yeah. but, um, you know, sometimes, you know, I, I played with a bit of an edge and, you know, it, it's tough sometimes when you just can't, um, stick up for yourself or, you, you know, you, you know, sometimes it just boils over and that's, I mean, that's the reality of it. But, um, having a bunch of pins and in, in college hockey's, uh, it's not really something to be congratulated. Yeah. No, I, I just, uh, you know, cause I know there are a lot of rats that play once you put the cage on, then everyone plays like they're six feet, you know, seven feet tall. And they're, you know, Bob Probert out there. Cause you know that if someone punches you in the face, chances are you're going to have a glove on and you got the cage on. So, uh, it's just, it was just something to say that, uh, that even, with the change, you know, from, you know, your, uh, junior hockey to college, you still somehow managed to put up a few penalty minutes. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was still going to stay involved physically. That was still a big part of my game. Um, I guess that was still something that I was figuring out as I probably got into my junior and senior year was how to do it without crossing the line and without penalizing myself or the team um and just kind of finding a balance between playing aggressively and playing physically but staying out of the penalty box or you know not getting suspended i guess ultimately was was probably the biggest thing now that uh your senior year you were the team's most valuable player and you did lead the team in scoring uh, at the end of that season, you ended up playing a few games for the Springfield Falcons. I think they were at the time, right? The Falcons. Yep. Okay. How did you end up in Springfield? Um. So I had a couple, again, couple teams interested. Um, you know, if, uh, certainly in the second half, I was, I was on the radar for an NHL contract. For you know, I was a free agent, so it was um, any team could kind of take a flyer on me. Um, and in the end, that was, that was the best opportunity that came of it was a, was an American league tryout with, with Edmonton and Springfield. Um, and I, I didn't want to go somewhere where I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to complete my classes. So Springfield was, uh, they were out of the playoffs, um, for sure. They, they had like maybe five games left in their season at the time we finished up. Um, and I wanted to, to go somewhere where I could at least get an idea for what the American league was going to be like, you know, was it, was I going to be able to make the jump? I, I really didn't, I didn't know. Like you don't know until you go somewhere and that's, um, you know, as you kind of climb the ladder and, and each, each step gets a little more difficult each time the transition's a little bit, a little bit tougher. Well, this is getting like, close to the top of the ladder it's like you know if you can figure this out you're, you're kind of knocking on the door but a lot of guys haven't figured it out and this is kind of the end of the line so i wanted to see where i was going to be at so the following summer i could plan accordingly uh so springfield offered me a 
an opportunity to go out there and play a few games. Um, I think it was only going to be for like two or three weeks. And, and then I could go back and uh, finish out my school. So um, I went out there and no idea what to expect. I hadn't, hadn't been out um, to Massachusetts, never been to Springfield, never seen an American League hockey game. And I think there was, there was maybe 10 of us that were all, all ended up on PTOs at the time. I think uh, Jordan Eberle was one of them. Okay. Uh, so he was definitely getting in the lineup. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Petrie was another one. He was one of Edmonton's wow. higher draft picks. Uh, and then there was myself, um, Matt Becker, who I played with over in the UK uh, against a little bit more. And then there was, you know, there was maybe up to 10 of us staying at the hotel and we would walk over to the rink and played a few games. And then, uh, you know, we would go back and we didn't have classes. I, I couldn't believe it. I thought this pro thing's amazing. You go to the rink, you come back home in the hotel and you have nothing to do. You know? and, and we had a, we had a bar in the lobby. So we would go sit, have beers and hang out and, and just kind of get a taste of things. So there wasn't, there wasn't much else to do in Springfield. So we would just kind of hang out as a group and, uh, just try to take in as much as you could. Now there's two guys I want to ask you about, even though you're only there for a short time, I don't think you overlapped with uh, our mutual friend, Matt Nickerson. I think he, he was there earlier in the year, but was he there at the end of the year when you were there? Yep. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. That was where I first met Nicker. Okay. Um, yeah, he was he was one of the guys there. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't there very long, so we didn't, we didn't get to know too many guys. But uh, just because because <laughs> the look he had, man, <laughs> he's a big dude with tattoos and a, and a big scrappy goatee, dangling beard. He was he was someone that everyone kind of remembers. And um, when I ended up playing with him in Belfast, like seven years later, I. I recognized him right away and you know, it wasn't long before we uh, got back to chit chat and had a good laugh about that. And uh, your assistant coach that you're someone who I am a monster fan of uh, from his playing days. And again, you're only there for a few weeks, but I have so much respect for Jerry Fleming, uh, as, you know, first as a player. And then uh, I know that uh, I know a lot of guys who played under him, especially with Fredericton uh, when they had Michelle Terry and a lot of the guys leaned on Jerry. Uh, what kind of, what was it like playing for Jerry? And again, he was the assistant coach, not the head coach. Yeah. So he, I think Rob Dom was the head coach. Um, and so, you know, Jerry kind of gave a quick, quick introduction and um, usually the assistant coaches are the guys that the PTOs would talk to. So he was, he was great with me, and um, and I think for him, probably, he had so many new guys that he was having to now work with. I think that's kind of one of the challenges of uh, the American League teams is that at that time of the year, every every team brings in, you know, some of their some of their top draft picks will come after their season's done, and then the teams um, bring in some college prospects. You know, it's probably tough for them just to even get a get a hold on uh, some of the new guys in there and then try to try to coach and still win games at the same time. So he, he was great with me when I first got in. I don't know if you've ever done this, but uh, as far as I'm concerned, I have uh, I have Jerry on my Mount Rushmore of uh, minor league uh, enforcers. I don't know. Have you ever gone down to Jerry Fleming rabbit hole on YouTube? 
No, I haven't. Oh, that's boy. tonight's task. Yeah, I would definitely do that if you want to see guys get hit with like, you know, I mean, you remember his hands, I imagine they're basically cinder blocks. And, uh, you know, definitely you might want to do that once uh, once we're done here. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> I'll do that. Um, so the following season, you attended Phoenix Coyotes training camp. Um, any memorable moments from there? The only thing that I, I know of, uh, I saw that you scored a goal against LA. And in another game, you did very well in a fight against a player named Dylan King. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I had trained with Shane Doan and Kamloops for, I, I think probably the previous 10 years. So from the time I was about 13 or 14, we, we would always train back home in Kamloops. Greg Zoris is our, is our guy here. And he's, he's kind of had the same group together for our entire careers now. And Every summer we would we would be back in Kamloops and we would train, and um, donors said, you know, that Brad Tree lived in the GM, he was the GM of Phoenix at the time, uh, was interested in me, and if I wanted to come come do rookie camp in the summer, uh, they'd take a look, and and if it went well, then they'd give me another shot at the actual rookie camp that would have started that fall, and I I said. You know, it would be kind of nice to have a contract first. Mm-hmm. You know, so there was a couple couple other opportunities that I, I was looking at. And and he said, you know, if you if you go down there and do the right things, I think you'll get a good opportunity. And I think this is something that you should probably really look into doing. So uh, there's not many guys like Donor that, mm-hmm. that you can just, you can really trust, you know, you can oh, trust yeah. what the guy's saying. And um, he was super upfront with me. And. Um, so I figured, Hey, that's, that's all I need to hear is, is it's going to be an opportunity. So, uh, you know, when he said that to me, I, I felt like I almost, I almost had to live up to his expectations and I, I kind of had to really put, put forward what he was kind of believing in me. So, um, I went down there and, and really tried to try to do my best and, uh, and things went went well in the rookie camp. So we had two games against the LA, uh, rookies. Um, like you said, I, I scored a goal and, uh, got in a fight with Dylan King and ended up cutting him open. And it was, I think with maybe like four or five minutes left in the second game. And, um, it just kind of, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't fought in maybe four or five years. Since I was playing college uh, and it just kind of brought back, you know, a whole new adrenaline rush. I felt like I was, uh, I could be a whole new player playing pro once I got confident. And, um, so that was kind of a, a cool moment. I ended up getting, getting invited to main camp. Um, I remember Brad Tree Living had a me- meeting with me and, you know, I think he said something like, um, you know, every year we hope, to have a free agent come in and, and make an impact. Um, and he said, this year, I, that's, that's been you. And they offered me a spot in, in the main camp. I, I, uh, you know, I, I remember leaving that meeting, like I was, I was shaking. I was, I was so excited. You know, I, I, I thought I played well and I, I thought I did my best. And then to kind of hear that confirmed was, was pretty special. Um, so I went to main camp, ended up playing the one exhibition game and, didn't end up getting a contract out of it, but I remember just leaving that camp thinking that I, 
I think I could you know, have a pro career. I don't know where necessarily. Um, I don't know how it was going to turn out, but I, I felt confident enough that I could that I could give it a an actual shot. Did uh, did Don play in that exhibition game? Yeah, he did. He was. Uh, I remember he was right beside me on the bench um, for the anthem. Nice. Uh, yeah, very special moment. Um, and I, I remember right before puck drop, he, he just said to me, he said, you got to go and take someone's job. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's what it is now. It's not, you know, it's not just tryouts where they give you a handshake and, and say goodbye. This is like, you're taking food off someone's table now. And, yeah. and that's, that's the reality of it is when you get to that level, it's like, you know, what are you willing to do to, to have this lifestyle and, and, and take this job opportunity from, from someone else who's, you know, putting it on the line just as much. Now, did you end up, this is one thing I couldn't figure out. Did you start the season in Vegas or did you start the season in San Antonio? So I did, I did a rookie camp with Phoenix, Mm -hmm. main camp with Phoenix, main camp with San Antonio, and then main camp in Las Vegas. It was like, (laughs) it was probably five weeks of training camp. Yeah. At least in, in some of the hottest places Mm -hmm. in the United States. And I remember from, so that was their affiliate system. It was was Phoenix, San Antonio, and then Vegas was their East Coast affiliate. Mm -hmm. And me and who ended up being one of my good buddies, Justin Bernhardt, we both got sent down. Well, actually, I I got cut first and sent to Vegas. And we were roommates in the hotel, and he goes, oh, man, that sucks. He goes, you know, best of luck, but I'll, I'll see you before you head off to the airport. And uh, he came back to the hotel, but an hour and a half later, he goes, fuck me. He goes, I got just got fucking cut, too. <laughs> <laughs> you can go to the airport together. Oh, no. No, he happened to to drive down. Oh, okay. And so the coach in Vegas said, hey, why don't you, you know, Bernie's driving anyways. Why don't you just jump in with him? Mm. And I said, Oh, okay. Yeah. Sure, that that shouldn't be too bad. It can't be that far. Well, looked on a map, it was about a 20-hour drive. And uh, it actually turned out because we'd been in camp for four weeks already. It was about a two-day holiday for us to just get out on the road and chill out for a bit. I bet. I bet. So, so one of the things I like to ask the guys, and again, the reason why I asked who you started the season with was because uh, and you may not remember because, you know, I interview a lot of enforcers and I always try to point out the fact that I think to to get to any level of, of pro hockey, you, you know, the, nobody that just knows how to fight gets that level because there's plenty of people who can only fight and they never really achieve that success. And you've had a lot of goals in your career, but that season, either with Vegas or with San Antonio, you scored your first professional goal. Do you remember your first professional goal? Um, and you've had quite a bit, so you may not, but I always like to kind of point that out to people. I, I don't remember the, um, let's see. I don't remember the first one, uh, in Vegas. I do remember my first American league goal. It was a call up to San Antonio. Mm -hmm. Um, but no, the first one in Vegas, I can't recall it. So tell me about the San Antonio one. 
so the San Antonio one happened after I think I was down in Vegas for the first two, maybe three months uh, of the East Coast season. Then I ended up getting called back up to San Antonio. Um, and then I, I had flown, I think, you know, the whole day. It's, it's never an easy trip when you're it's never easy trip when you're probably doing the American league call up the NHL, but the East coast one, the American leagues definitely difficult because you're coming usually into smaller airports. The connections are a little bit tougher. And, uh, so I spent the, the majority of that day traveling, got in just in time for the game, um, suited up and played a game. I think I was with Tyler Mosienko because he was, he was our captain in Vegas at the time, and Eric Nielsen, who was uh, a pretty well-known tough guy at oh, the yeah. time. Absolutely. And we played on a line. We were the fourth line in San Antonio, and um, Mosey just kind of shot the puck and stayed in the, in the crease somewhere, and I, I just happened to – I was just fishing around for it, to be honest, and uh, the goal horn was just going off. I didn't even really see it go in, but yeah. uh, I just poked in dug away and that was that so um i thought hey this is this isn't too bad i <laughs> i could do this yeah and uh four days later or four games sorry i think was it four or four or eight games four. later I was, I was right back down there. <laughs> oh you had four with uh san antonio four with san antonio there yeah. you go it happens quick <laughs> So, you know what you were talking about earlier when you mentioned uh, going to camp with Phoenix and you got into that fight and, you know, you hadn't fought all those years really in uh, in college. And now you find yourself in Vegas. And when I was looking at that roster, uh, it didn't seem like there was a lot of toughness on the team outside of yourself. And so now you're back pro first year outside of college. Uh, was that a, uh, an adjustment for you, knowing that you were the guy on the team that uh, might have to do the bulk of the, the – uh, the, the dirty work? Um, yeah, it did. Um, I, I guess I didn't, I didn't really look at it like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wasn't really even sure at the time because I hadn't played pro. I wasn't even sure that, you know, the enforcer role uh, was kind of designated to a guy, you know, right. I, I was just, I was just used to playing hard and, sticking up for myself and my teammates but i'd never really played with a true like enforcer or anything mm-hmm. like that right um and even the east coast when i was there um because you could only dress 10 forwards um and a lot of teams man you, your rosters were so thin by like december you'd, you'd be down to some nights we would dress like we would dress nine, eight forwards. So you, you really couldn't even consider fighting because you'd be down to six forwards and you, you know, you yeah. would really not be helping anything out. Um, yeah. And so the, the fighting side in that, in that kind of time frame was, it was definitely trending out of the game. Mm-hmm. You know, there was still, guys that had 30, 40 fights, but you could definitely see it changing around then. Um, and, and our team, uh, coach was Ryan Mujanel. He was, he was trying to build a, a super skilled, fast team. And we were that. Yeah. We had a very good team. Um, 
but we kind of at times did get pushed around a little bit. Um, so we, we probably could have used a bit of toughness, but the, the truth is you, you just couldn't really afford to, to, to dress a tough guy a lot of nights because you didn't have the roster spots. You didn't have, you didn't have room for, for one guy just to be sitting on the bench because you, you only had three lines. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple of fights you had that year uh, with Vegas that I, uh, Bridgeport related uh, that I want to ask you if you remember. Uh, one of the fights was against uh, a guy who played for Bridgeport, uh, Pascal Morency. Uh, did you remember that fight you had? I think he was at Bakersfield at the time. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that one. Um, I didn't, I guess maybe probably I was naive at the time. I, I didn't I didn't know who Pascal was at the time. So yeah. Uh, yeah. maybe if I had, I, I probably wouldn't have been um, too excited to be fighting. <laughs> um, and so I didn't even know that he was a lefty. So that, I could have got myself into big trouble. But um, after... I, I met him a couple times afterwards when I played in Bridgeport because he was good friends with some of the guys I played with, and he yeah. was he was a real good dude mm-hmm. and um, and a good player too. Actually, I remember he was uh, he was mostly known, I think, probably by a lot of people for for his fighting and his physical play. But he he was a good hockey player as well. Mm-hmm. He will always have a place in my heart because he played an exhibition game, um, and uh, I think it was Dion Phaneuf uh, just cheap shotted um Kyle Oposo and uh Pascal actually came off the bench to challenge him and Fanuff didn't want to fight him and he got uh I think he I forget how many game suspension he got and, and you know the Islanders were not that great that year and I was really really hoping that uh Garth Snow would give give him a game you know call him up for a game kind of like you know yeah. he stepped up for our guys and you know like sometimes you just you know there's different ways you can reward a guy and and uh you know like and you know, Garth Snow appreciates that that kind of play, and uh, just the way that Pascal stepped up in that exhibition game. The whole season, I was just like, man, give this guy a game, just just give him a game. But uh, you know, nobody listens to me in my house, so definitely Garth <laughs> Snow. He wasn't going to listen to me either, but it would have been great. But you know, since that, I, I was aware of Pascal's career before that. Uh, but once that happened, he'll always have a place in my heart after doing that. The way that he stepped up for Kyle Oposo. Yeah, that's. Um that's cool when you hear it from, from that side, because, um, you know what the players are, are going through and the mindset they're, that they're going through sticking up for their teammates and and how much it means in the dressing room. Um, you know, so it is, it is cool sometimes to hear it from, from a fan's perspective, uh, that they're appreciating it too, you know, because, uh, and not saying that that's why guys do it, but, uh, it is something that, that sometimes, uh, especially you know, in, in media and stuff, because it's it can be frowned upon. It yeah. sometimes um, it doesn't necessarily get the respect that sometimes uh, it should get because it's um, you know it's not an easy thing to go and put your own health and uh, safety on the line just to uh, stick up for for someone on your team. So. Uh, I have said it for decades. It's the toughest job in sports and it's the most thankless job in sports because if you do it right, other people get the glory. Like obviously, you know, a guy that goes out and, and 
kicks ass and everything, the fans are going to love him. But if he does that, he's probably doing it for the benefit of his teammates. And then they're going to have more room and they're going to get, you know, more goals or more assists or whatever. So you're helping your teammates in another way. And like, it's, it's kind of, I've always equated it to the offensive lineman in football, where if you're, you're doing your job, right, someone else is going to get the glory. And there's people like myself uh, who love, who love the enforcers and the job they do, but that's why I call it the toughest and the most thankless job in all sports. Yep. Yep. That's for sure. Another guy that you fought, who later became your teammate and you actually had two fights with him this year, one in the coast and one in the American league was Adam Huxley. And uh, they were two pretty good scraps. Do you remember those fights? Uh, first one was in Vegas. And then the second one you were with Peoria. Yeah. Yeah. I remember those ones. Well, um, the first one with Huxley was actually uh, a big reason why I got the call up to San Antonio. Um, so I did well in that scrap. And again, um, Bradtree Living was watching the game, and uh, my coach came in after the game. And he said, "Oh man," he said, "Brad's here tonight." He's like, I, I, "You're going to get a call up for sure. Like I, I can just feel it." And sure enough, you know, I, I think their next injury, I, I was the first guy to get called up. Um, and then I knew from the next time. Um, when I was called up to Peoria, it was, it was quite a while later. I think the, the call up to Peoria was in uh, March or something. And Huxley was in Chicago at the time. And I, I just knew that that was going to be a perfect opportunity, you know, cause sometimes it's, it's tough finding, you know, a good matchup when you're trying to make, make a name for yourself in the American league. You don't know necessarily who, who you should be fighting, when's a good time, like, you know, you, you don't want to step on anyone's toes on your own team, um, and sure enough, first shift, Huxley came out and uh, asked me right away, and we had another good scrap, um, and then right after that, Anthony Peluso, who I was line mates with, mm-hmm. ended up fighting Kip Brandon right after that, so we were both in the penalty box, and uh, the coach was... Uh, Jared Bedner, who's yep. to the abs now, um, had a good chat with me after and, and he told me, you know, that's, that's a good way to keep a job is to just, you know, keep going, playing hard and, uh, getting your teammates fired up and, and just let me know that he appreciated the effort and, and the, my teammates did as well. And sometimes, like I said, getting gratification from the fans, um, that's cool to see, but when you hear it from from your players and like your teammates, that's the ultimate. Especially when you're new to a dressing room, um, when you can see the guys appreciate that you know you're on their side and um, you're willing to stick up for them, and, and you know you're now part of the team more or less. Mm-hmm. That's kind of that's the ultimate gratification that. Um, you know that's that's tough to to top that when you when you feel your teammates are are really believing in you and uh, are willing to go to bat for you because you you've done the same for them. And you had some tough teammates there, like you mentioned, Anthony Peluso. Uh, was Ryan Reeves on the team when you were there? No, he wasn't. He was uh, gone already. I believe he he would have been up to St. Louis at that time. Okay. Uh, uh, what about uh, Dean Arcine? Was he there? Yeah, Dean. Dean was definitely there. He was the captain, uh, and he was 
he was a good family friend from years prior because he ended up he grew up playing hockey with one of my cousins. Uh, he's, he's an Abbotsford, BC boy, so he, he grew up two three hours away. He was he was a few years older, but um, my older cousin uh, Brent was was his teammate, and they were they were family friends from a long time ago. And we hadn't crossed paths until I ended up playing there. So uh, small world sometimes, but he was he was a great captain and and a fucking great competitor that guy he was um he was kind of getting towards the end of his career but he was still blocking everything and he was still you know uh, ultimate team guy he'd be the first guy inviting the younger players or the, the pto guys out for some beers and, and made sure everyone was a part of it so he, he was a great captain uh just in the short time that i was there and uh, I don't know if he was there when you were there because you were both only there for a short period of time. But was Dave Scatchard there at all when you were there? No, he wasn't there. Okay. Um, yeah, he was. Um, he might have been up. He might have been up with St. Louis then as well, but he, he wasn't in Peoria. So every guy that I've interviewed that played in college or university hockey and then went to pro, I always ask the same thing. Uh, which is a dirtier game, the pro game or the college game? Ah, uh, it's a good question. Um, probably the pro game. Realistically, it's just uh, you're the first one that said the pro game. I, I shouldn't say dirty, right? Yeah, it, it's it's tougher. It's tougher to play. It's just a yeah. tougher lifestyle. You're playing, you know, two three times more games. Uh, you're traveling more, you know, you don't just have a Friday, Saturday game, but yeah, I guess some of the, the chippiness and, and the slashing and, and stuff, you, you're probably going to get more of that in college. Um, yeah. So I guess dirtier wise, fair enough, tougher to play. Uh, definitely the, the minor leagues. I couldn't speak for the NHL. I'm, I'm sure that's probably quite a bit cleaner and a little easier lifestyle. Oh yeah. The lifestyle is probably, probably a little bit easier yeah. you know uh so the next season uh i know that you were uh at least a portion of training camp you were with the portland pirates did you go to any nhl camps or did you start with portland in the training camp uh no i went straight to portland that year uh, so that was uh, san antonio had or sorry phoenix moved uh their affiliation to portland um uh, so it was kind of the same organization that I was with, um, with San Antonio a little bit the year prior. Okay. Um, so they offered me an invite to camp. Um, so I went straight out there. Uh, Brad was the GM uh, for Portland as well at the time and um, offered me same thing. It was an opportunity to come in and, and earn a contract and, and hopefully, um, you know, stick around and, and, and play there for the year. And uh, I don't know how many games you got into. The only thing that I had seen from that uh, from your camp there uh, was a bout that you had against uh, Miles Stays uh, from Albany. Yep, yep, I remember that. Um, I think you know it was a really good good scrap. It was uh, I think I hit a guy late and he came and fought me. And, um, and I think the next day I was planned, or the team was planned on on playing a another game um and i think i'm not sure where it was but i think it got i think it got canceled because the ice was bad oh, okay and um you know that was kind of be that was kind of the last opportunity to 
to put on a, a show for for the GMs and stuff. And so I was planning on playing that one and uh, didn't get the chance and <laughs> ended up getting back right after. So it felt like a bit of a raw deal. But, yeah, I mean, I guess if they were planning on keeping you, they would, they would, <laughs> they would have already known that. So Yeah. So did they also move their East Coast League affiliate to Chicago? Is that how you ended up with the Express? Uh, no, no. Um, I, I signed an East Coast deal with Chicago because they were unaffiliated. So okay. um, I liked the idea that I could I could go to any American League team. Uh, I was free to to be called up anywhere, um, and and Chicago was a little bit closer to a lot of those teams that are out east. So it, it seemed like it was easier for for guys to get called up from those teams. If a team was in a, a tight spot, it seemed like those guys were able to get called up a lot easier. Just logistically, it was it was quicker. And um, if you were sitting and waiting on an opportunity, it was probably easier to get one out of out of Chicago. They were, you know, right by the main airport and, um, you know, a drivable distance to obviously the Chicago Wolves and, uh, Peoria and, and some of those teams. So it just seemed like it was easier to, to make the jump. And truthfully, I, I spent the year in Vegas. I didn't need to do another year there. I was over, mm. I was over that. I was ready just to focus on hockey and, and try to make it out of the East coast permanently. I was going to say, you know, for your time in the East coast league, uh, there's a lot of guys who play in the East Coast League that never play in, you know, places like Chicago and Vegas. So I guess, you know, aside from the the level of hockey where maybe you were hoping to be in the American League, you played in two pretty nice cities, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and um, one of my best buddies, Sean McMonagle, that I played my first year in Vegas with, um, we both ended up playing our, our last season in Cardiff together. Mm. Uh so it kind of came full circle for us. And, you know, there's a few times we'd be having a few beers this year and, you know, we just kind of think like, how, you know, did that really happen that we were, <laughs> you know, first year guys and we get to play the year in Vegas and and it's somewhere you never even expect to necessarily even go. And mm-hmm. now you get a chance to live there and, ex- and experience it for for all that it was, it was it was pretty crazy. So it was it was cool, and, and some of those guys that we played with because we were all around the same age and we were all experiencing the same things at the same times in our lives. That they ended up being some of our best friends, and we still are are good friends to this day. So that's pretty cool. That's awesome. Um, so you've played for some pretty tough coaches in terms of the way they played. Like we mentioned, Jerry Fleming, uh, Bednar was tough when he played. I don't know if a lot of people realize that, but, uh, you also played for Steve Martinson in Chicago. How'd you like playing for him? Yeah, he was great. He's, uh, yeah, he, he was probably one of the toughest, I think. Um, we'll get to Brent Thompson. I'm sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And he would be in the mix as well, but Mm -hmm. Marty was funny. He was, uh, he was super honest. Uh, some guys didn't like it, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, of course that guys don't like hearing, uh, negative things. It's all fine if it's, if it's positive, but, um, you know, you can't just have it, have it that way. You got to get it both ways. And Marty was, was fine to do that. And he was always, he was always great with me and, um, always 
looking to advance my career. You know, uh, he wasn't he wasn't in it just to have personal success. He really wanted to see his players that he felt could move on, move on. And he he was upfront with me, and uh, he he told me when teams were calling him, uh, you know, he was not selective, but he was careful to, you know, put me in an opportunity where I was going to have success and, a, and an opportunity to, to stay up rather than, you know, just do a one, one game up and back and, and just kind of be a filler spot. He, he was patient and, and honest with me. And, um, and then like Brian Mujanel was in, in Vegas here before, um, you know, they, they both, uh, wanted to put me in a spot where I would have success, not just kind of go up and, and just fill a spot. So uh, I was thankful for for both of them because the reality is when you're when you're in the East Coast, a lot of those teams that are uh, looking for guys, they're they're talking to the coach. They they don't have time to watch the games. They you know they call down and ask who should you get in a call up, who who deserves it, who sh- you know who's capable, who who can help us out. And, uh, without those guys giving me reference, um, I, I, I don't get the call-ups. That's, that's just a fact. So is that how you ended up in Bridgeport? Brent Thompson placed the call to Steve Martinson? Yeah, I think actually, um, Mujanel was, was a part of that too, because Thompson coached, uh, the year prior in Alaska for, for the aces. Um, and they were in our division with Las Vegas. So we played them a ton, uh, and I think I think that was a big part of it. So he was he was familiar with me already, um, you know. And, and the way the East Coast schedule is set up, especially with Alaska, um, we would fly up there and we would play like fuck, we'd play like four games up there in seven days, and and then turn around, play a couple games in in California, and then we'd go back to Vegas. And sure enough, Alaska would be there again. You're like, what the fuck is going on here? You know, you. you we we played him like fifteen times, I think. Wow, something like that. Um, so he was he was familiar with, uh, with me as a player, um, and I think you know Muj and, and of course Martinson would have would have played a part in that when when Tomo was was looking for a call up guy. So this is where Blair Riley uh, enters my stream of consciousness when you were a, a Bridgeport Sound Tiger, and you know it it was different back then than when I was watching. Uh, your fights all in a row. Um, and I watched a lot of your fights in preparation for this interview. And this season, the 11-12 season that you had in Bridgeport, uh, in my opinion, uh, you were on fire that year. Uh, and you, you could play. I mean, I'm not just saying you were there to fight. You had 11 points, 55 games. but And you only had 77 penalty minutes, so you made your penalty minutes count with these fights. But <clears throat> I hope you don't mind me saying, this year I think was your best year with your gloves off. You had some amazing fights this year. Yeah, I guess I didn't look back through them at the time, but um... oh, we're going to talk about them, so maybe it'll jar your memory. <laughs> but I, I just had to tell you that because I, you know, as the season's going, and you see, you see different things, and you know, maybe I'm not thinking about Bridgeport for a week and a half or whatever. Then I'm trying to catch up, and you, you know, and obviously we're going to talk about some of your teammates that are on there too. But as I watch these fights back to back to back, I got to tell you, I was like, man, this guy, you definitely, and and we'll get to it, but. Obviously, you 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 played. You, you had to play a decent amount. Most of the fights you had, you did very well. And so, 
I'm not, I wasn't surprised in the least when the Islanders offered your deal the following season, which we will get into, but I just had to get that off my chest right off the bat. Like your, your fights this season were unbelievable. Yeah, I guess, um, I'd have to take a, take a trip down and, and yeah. see him, but, um, <laughs> you know, with some of the guys we had on that team, it felt like if you weren't, if you weren't fucking doing it, someone else was going to be, mm. and and you weren't going to be dressing because, you know, someone else was going to was going to do it. And yep. it just seemed like it created, and especially into the next year uh, after that, it just created like almost a, a competition within the room to like, it was almost like a race to just to get a fight because you didn't know if, if you didn't get one in first, then hey, too bad. You might've missed your partner at the dance. And, uh, you know, if, if you missed out, you might not get another chance the next night. And that's kind of when you're when you're in the minors and you're like never comfortable with your spot. That's kind of what that breeds is a a dog mentality. You kind of have to you got to earn your keep every night. It's not just kind of now and then. You got to be doing something all the time. Well, we're going to talk about the guys that you played with now, and this is pretty much a total 180 from where you were uh, in Vegas. You you played with some killers on this team. Uh, Islander fans, definitely, we'll talk about the first guy. Islander fans and NHL fight fans are definitely familiar with this guy. Uh, I'll call him a legend, and I don't even blink when I say it, and that's Trevor Gillies. And I'm assuming that's the first time that uh, you ever, uh, obviously it's the first time you ever played with Trevor, uh, but the first time that you ever got to really see him up close. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, it was, um, and he kind of built up such a persona at that time that, uh, he was, a, uh, an intimidator, you know, like there was enforcers and there was fighters and he was, he was kind of an intimidator. Yep. It was kind of an old school thing. So he was for someone who hadn't played a ton in the NHL at that time, he was, he was probably one of the most famous fighters mm-hmm. just cause his look and like some of the, some of the antics and some of the some of the stories that you would hear. And when I first got called up, I remember I, you know, you get put in the hotel room uh, and you go check in. And um, I go to my hotel room and I'm just ready to get a good night's sleep. And I I open the key and and Trevor's in the room. Mm-hmm. And I thought, holy, what the fuck's going on here? <laughs> And uh, I don't know what to expect from this guy. I'd never met him. And he he couldn't have been a nicer guy. I, I was actually, I was almost like, I almost didn't know how to respond because I, I was expecting him to kind of be an asshole, you know. Mm-hmm. Here's a guy that just got sent down from the NHL, uh, you know, a career fighter. And he was just, he was the nicest guy. He was like, mm-hmm. Uh, he was interested to hear where I came from. And, and I think part of that was because uh, he he took a similar path. He mm-hmm. Nothing was ever given to him. So I think he always, he appreciated where he came from. And he he always was appreciative of, of what he was given in the game, which I thought was really cool. And that kind of always stuck with me. Yeah. Um, but I remember I was going to sleep that first night. I was still nervous. Like I was, I was going to my first uh, practice in the morning with the new team. I I didn't know what to expect. I was still trying to make it as an American leaguer. I I had you know my agent telling me like this is probably my last chance. Coaches you know saying you know 
better make the most of it, this and that. And I was thinking that already myself. And um, I, I sleep on my shoulder and I, I, you know, I don't close my eyes at first. I look over and I just see this handlebar mustache ball <laughs> staring at me. And I ro- rolled over to go to sleep and I was like, Phew. I don't know if I'm going to fucking make it. <laughs> you know, maybe, you know, maybe this isn't for me. Mm. And, uh, and turns out Trevor McGill's, he was, uh, he was a mentor for me and he's still a good friend to this day. He's someone that, um, a lot of people are probably, um, unaware. Or he's a bit misunderstood, but for guys that played with him and that are teammates with him, uh, they know how phenomenal of a guy he was. He he would do anything for his teammates, um, anything for the team, and and he was just such a good dude off the ice that yeah. um, he he deserves to get a little more respect from people outside the game, just because uh, sometimes what you see isn't always the reality, and and people forget that you know when we're on the ice, that's I mean we're in essence we're we're going to, to battle yep. and um, sometimes that warrior, that persona is not who you, who you're perceived to be in, in reality. So um, he, he was a pretty cool dude and uh, I was happy I got to get to know him and, and get to be friends with him. And he's got some of the best stories I've, I've heard come out of a guy if you get a, a few beers at him. So oh, he, yeah. he, he, well, the one thing I say about, you know, the people that you're talking about in terms of the lack of respect, I, I usually say it's two things. Uh, well, let's say three. One, those people, none of them have ever been punched in the face. Uh, none of them ha- would ever have the, the intestinal fortitude to actually step in for someone and defend them. Okay. And, yep. uh, you know, it, it, it's just, you know, I, I just, uh, I get, uh, I, I'm, I'm 50. So I don't get as fired up as I used to and everything. But, I, you know, when uh, when I see these people that that disrespect the role and disrespect the players, um, you know, it's just they're just people that could never could never envision themselves. Uh, the third point I was going to make set uh, the sacrifice like the mm-hmm. if you go and you go to Trevor, the back of Trevor's hockey card and you see all the cities he played in and you see all the minor league towns he played in and you think about all the t- all the hours on the bus and everything he's done the sacrifice just to get however many games it was uh, with the Islanders that he had and, and make no mistake he played parts of two seasons up here the guy's a folk hero the guy's a legend up here. And uh, the people that throw around the criticism, they know nothing about sacrifice and they know nothing about character. So, uh, you know, maybe in my younger days, I used to kind of get fired up and I used to, you know, kind of like, you know, maybe go back at these people where now I just go, you know what, you have no idea what you're talking about. And, you know, it's just, and it's not even anything where you have to put in the work. Like I say, just go to his hockey DB, look at the towns he played in, look at the, look at all the cities he played in the minor leagues and all the different leagues and everyone and, and the people that he's defended and, you know, talk to the guy for five minutes and you'll never have a criticism of the guy again. Yeah. And I think, um, just the way I, I saw him with a lot of his fans, uh-huh. uh, the way he treated people at the booster club events and, um, just super respectful and, yeah. and has time for everyone, which mm-hmm. uh, isn't always the case with with guys. I yep. mean, you'd like to think that is, but just for just for what people think he should be, it's it couldn't be more opposite. Than, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just I, I don't know. I guess what do you what do you say? I mean, yeah. people 
that people are going to judge someone without knowing them, then that's is what it is. So I'm sure I'm sure Gills doesn't lose any sleep over no, it. Not um, at all. Not at all. Uh, people that, that do truly know him and, and have played with him, he's he's a great dude. Uh, another guy you played with who spent some time with the Islanders is Michael Haley. What are your recollections of Hales? Uh, yeah, so I never played against Hales in the minors, but I think um, we had a very similar career trajectory uh, from our from our pro careers. Okay, uh, he he started out in the coast. Uh, he kind of battled and uh, turned some heads and uh, made his way up. Um, he had a great, uh, great career and a different career in, in his junior path than me, but, um, he definitely earned his way up and, and someone like Gills doesn't get the respect for the teammate he is. I don't think Hales quite got the respect he deserved as a hockey player. Cause he was, he was a fucking good player. Uh, and sometimes some of the physical stuff and, and his fighting, over got overshadowed uh, a little bit because he could he could shoot the puck he could score and he could hit and he could really do everything uh, for someone and then someone that was a little undersized for some of the guys who was fighting he was taking on guys who were significantly better bigger than he was mm-hmm. um, and he was he wasn't losing fights yeah. you know I didn't see him lose too many um, and for. For someone that um, was giving up, you know, six, seven inches to a lot of guys, he was hanging in there and uh, banging and throwing bombs. I thought he was a fantastic fighter to watch. He was probably as exciting because he would throw with both hands and and some of the like technical stuff. Um, he was very good at. Uh, so he was he was something that I I learned a lot from. Um, being able to learn how to play the game and then know when to uh, pick your spots and, and when to fight as well. Uh, I thought he was very good at that. Well, and if anyone questions if Michael Haley can play the game, all you need to know is he played in the NHL this past season, and everybody that that follows the enforcers knows that the league and the sport has done everything they could to get rid of rid of guys who even remotely play physical, and Michael Haley's still playing in the NHL, albeit with the bad guys, with the Rangers, but I'll always root for him. I'll always root for him no matter what, but you know, nobody is playing in the NHL nowadays that can at least play the game a little bit, and Michael Haley's still playing in the NHL, so that should shut up any of his critics, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah, and uh, to be doing that on on the plus side of thirty as well yeah. is it's really actually quite impressive. I think. I mean, and that goes to show you that he's, uh, you know, he's bringing more to the table and just fighting because that's it's a lost art. You can't just be a fighter now. Um, yeah, like you said, he's he's obviously doing something right. He's doing a lot right. Yeah. So good for him, man. He's he's carved out. A serious career. I mean, he, he had a good career by the time I played with him in Bridgeport, and he's, you know, gone on another seven, eight years after that. So, um, Another guy you played with in Bridgeport who who is got to be arguably, if he's not the most popular player ever to play for Bridgeport, he's got to be uh, sitting at that table, and that's Brett Gallant. Yep. Yep. He's... He's... Uh, uh, I mean... He played I, with some killers, basically. Yeah, we were, uh, I remember at one time, 
we were thinking that we would probably have one of the toughest starting fives out there. And the only team that would have a, have a sniff at it was, uh, was Worcester at the time. And they, they had a tough team too. They had, uh, who did they have? McLaren and Bono and, uh, Pellick and Shinter. So, you know, they were kind of going, if we started five on five, who knows how this would turn out. It yeah. would be, it would have looked like a Royal Rumble, like a true one. Mm-hmm. Um, but Galley, man, he, you know, for a bit there, people were calling him uh, pound for pound toughest guy in the league. Mm-hmm. And the more I watched him, I'm like, I think this guy's the fucking toughest in the league. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, pound for pound, throw that out of here. Like, he's uh, he's beaten everyone. Yeah. It, you know, he wasn't losing to Wrecker. He was, he wasn't losing any fights. Not only that, he was, he was winning and he was like, he was active as like all hell. He was fighting every single night. And, you know, I saw him in between periods. His hands would be just demolished and he'd be looking for another fight. I'm like, Gally, I think you've proven your point here, (laughs) you know? And, he was someone that he just couldn't, he couldn't get enough of it. He truly seemed to love it. I don't know if he, if he actually did, but he certainly looked like he did. And talk about a guy that just put it all on the line. Like, I don't think, I don't think there could have been a guy that uh, would have got a call up that I, I think not a single person would have, been upset with you know like usually some guys are thinking it should be them getting the call and uh you know maybe they deserve it this that and the other there there wouldn't have been a single guy in the league that wouldn't have you know tipped their cap and been been super pumped just to see galley get some games and uh he he completely earned everything he ever had and um he did it the right way he uh he beat the shit out of some of the toughest guys to to lace him up and he did it by giving up at least 50 pounds to some were probably like 70, 80 pounds. Like I, I couldn't believe it. I remember guys would say when his first game, when he got called up, uh, they said he took his, uh, his street clothes off and they were laughing that this was going to be their new enforcer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they just couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. And I think he fought that night and then he fought the next three in a row and like, okay, yeah, <laughs> I guess this is, this is the guy. And you know, he, he was putting up 30, 40, I think he was up in 40, 50 fights for a couple of years running there. It was crazy. Uh, one last guy I want to ask you about. Islander fans may not be too familiar with him because I think he only played in a preseason up here. Uh, but if they watched Bridgeport at the time, they would have known him. And he's a guy that, that has had his share of scraps in the minors, and that's Ben Olsen. Mm. Yeah, he was, <laughs> he was another dude, actually. Yeah, that's crazy. Him. <laughs> Um, he was, he was probably six, six, five, mm-hmm. super long arms and he could throw them too. Yeah. Like, I guess we, we could have put, put Benny in goal and <laughs> six on six. Yeah, yeah. He was another tough kid. Good BC boys. He's, he's from the Island. So he was, uh, he was another good fellow that could throw him. Uh, so we touched on him earlier. Uh, how'd you like playing for Brent Thompson? 
Yeah, he was great. He was, um, he was an unreal coach. He was, um, I guess most people would call him, you know, a, a complete players coach, but he just had a, an incredible knack for, uh, tiptoeing the line of, um, you know, being your best buddy and, and being your coach and, and kicking you in the ass when you need it. And that's, that's probably the toughest part for a coach is, is to be able to, to walk that fine line where you, you know, the guy's, uh, really rooting for you and he, and he cares about you, but you know, he's not going to let you get away with anything. And, uh, he was, he was incredible at that. And he's just someone that you wanted to go out and compete for and battle for just because you knew that he was, he was preparing and doing everything that he possibly could to win the game. And, uh, he just expected that of his players and he, he had a good way of, uh, of pulling every little bit out of every single guy, which is probably the best skill for a coach to have is, is to get the most individually out of each player. And, uh, and especially at the American league where a lot of guys, um, you know, it, it can be selfish at times and that, that guys are, are looking for a call to the NHL. They're, they're looking for individual success, not, sometimes you know on purpose but the reality is that no one wants to be in the american league like no one's there because they you know they, they want to be everyone wants to be in the nhl so everyone's in one way or another hoping that they're the ones getting the call um so to be able to coach in that environment can be difficult at times and i thought he was he was probably the best at it that i had seen and um and a lot of guys got rewarded under him and and you see you know, Brock Nelson, Casey Zekas, some of these guys that, that played under Tomo that, you know, took some of that stuff and, and never looked back, never came back to the American League. So now we're going to circle back to Blair Riley here. We're going to talk about some of your scraps this year. And like I said, yeah, some of your scraps. Oh, by the way, when you go down the Jerry Fleming rabbit hole and you go back to watch your fights, uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, a young Brent Thompson was actually in a commercial for Razor Blades. I think it was, uh, he was with Hartford at the time, him and PJ Stock. Uh, did a commercial. I don't know if you were aware of that. You might want to look that one up too. Yeah. Oh no, we we watched it. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. No, that wasn't going to fly under the radar. <laughs> okay. Good. So, uh, first two fights you had with Bridgeport, if I'm not mistaken, were against the same guy, Andrew Carroll of Hershey. Uh, you did well in the first one, and you absolutely dominated the second one. Do you remember those two scraps? Yep. Yeah, I do. Um, yeah. The the first one it was a little bit into my my time with Bridgeport. Um, I just felt like I kind of was getting a bit of, bit of confidence. So I was feeling comfortable with, um, playing at the level. Finally, I think the first time, the first call up, um, I really started to feel like I, I could do it. I, I could play physical. I, I didn't have to worry about, you know, who was, who was going to challenge me or, you know, what was going to happen. I was just going to, I was going to go out and, and leave it all out there because if it was going to be my last crack at it or I wasn't going to get another opportunity, I was at least going to go out swinging and I was going to make the most of it. And that's kind of that's kind of what led me to, to kind of play in that way that year is I just basically said, like, fuck it, I'm, I'm either going for it or I'm going to, you know, call it a career and that's it. But at least I'll be able to walk away knowing that I – I gave it my all. So, uh, I remember that the second one at Hershey, 
uh, was at the end of the game and uh, that was a pretty loud crowd as they usually have there and yeah. um, our team was getting some confidence at that time we started going on a pretty good run and I remember that that crowd was uh, pretty quiet as I was leaving and I made a little bit of a gesture to the crowd and I was getting booed right off the ice it's, <laughs> there's no better feeling than that as I say that means you're doing something right if you're getting booed by the uh, the opposing crowd yeah, it's probably, uh, I mean, I ended up enjoying it more than I was getting cheered sometimes. It just, there was nothing better than being a villain on the road. I, I just love that more than anything. Uh, one of the fights you had that I actually got tired just watching it, you fought Tyler uh, Randall of Providence. And that fight seemed like it went on forever. Um, you obviously have to, I know that, that fitness is very important to you. Uh, your conditioning must be pretty good because I don't know if you remember that fight, but it seemed like it was never going to end. Yeah. Those like sometimes those ones where you just, I think it was part of it through a shift too. You're just like, you're throwing punches, but it, you know, you're both so tired that even if they hit, it's not going to do any damage. Like linesmen just get in there. It's <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the show's over, but I mean, I'm going to keep throwing these punches until, until it can't be done anymore. But at this point, no one's, yeah. <laughs> no one's doing any damage. Like, let's just wrap it up. Yeah. That's about where that one ended up. Uh, you were very active against Providence that season. You had an absolute slugfest with Kevin Miller. Do you remember that one? I do remember that one. Yeah. I've, I've watched that one a few times and that one's, um, just because you can see Gillies, I think we're playing on a line. I think he's he was maybe he ran a guy or yeah, I think he ran a guy or I hit someone late and then we were down a few goals and me and Miller ended up fighting. And a lot of times when you when you were fighting someone, you could hear Gills from the bench and he loved him like the corner guy. Uh, so you can hear him yelling like uppercut, uppercut. Yeah right shot the head's open so he's almost like a ufc corner guy in some <laughs> of those fights and you can see him in the video that he's he's in there yelling and uh i remember that game we ended up we were down three nothing we ended up coming back to win that was uh that was one of the better moments i had probably in in the bridgeport arena that was one of the bigger crowds that i remember we were having too that was uh that place was, was loud some nights. You know, if we got a good crowd at Webster Bank, it was phenomenal. Uh, and they loved seeing the scraps. And we got that entertainment going. It was rocking that night. Uh, two more scraps you had that year. One uh, against Matt Carrenti of Albany. Do you remember that one? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, what did he do? He kind of cheap shot me after the whistle, I think. Uh, just gave me a, a slash for no reason. Uh, I just shed my gloves right away. <laughs> Pretty good scrap with him. He was he was a tough kid actually. He was a he was a good player and he, yep. he was he was tough. Um, then he'd do some shit like that and he'd just get right under your guy's skin. So, um, yeah, that was uh, that was a good little scrap. And then the last fight, and he this guy is one of two guys who you fought multiple times, and he was actually a teammate of yours with the Express, and his story has been told, and it's a pretty good story about how he um, you know, progressed through the systems, and that's Bobby Robbins, and uh, a former teammate of yours, and I think he ended up fighting him four or five times total. 
and I think this was the first time you had fought him uh, when you were at Bridgeport and he's at Providence. Uh, do you remember your series of fights with Bobby? I I remember um, I, I remember them. Yeah, I don't remember obviously in sequential. Oh yeah, order. just um, just the fact that you were a teammate yeah. of his, and then it, yeah. it, it oh, was yeah. an on-ice oh. rivalry, sort of. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and he was I was good friends with him in, in Chicago. And we were mm-hmm. we were good friends. We played against each other. We both just knew that we we were both kind of in a similar spot, mm-hmm. and, and we had a job to do. Um, uh, he was a tough dude, very tough, and probably one of the best open ice hitters uh, that played at that time. Um, and he put together probably one of the best two years running there. Of, yeah. Uh, just constant, constant action. He was, every time you'd, you'd finish a game, and that was kind of the thing, you go check, drop your gloves. Yep, mm-hmm. there's Bobby. Uh, him and Galley were, every night you just couldn't, you couldn't make up any ground on the fight totals because they were fighting every night. Yeah. Um, so we had a couple, couple good scraps. Um, I think, I think one of them, he, he split me open in my lip. I think that was just in the training camp one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, we had, we had four or five. I think he was probably my, uh, most common opponent. I would say, I think probably by a few fights. I think it might be by one, and we'll bring up the other guy later. I'll, I'll jog your memory later. Uh, but I want to talk about your style. You're, a lot of times in your fights, you end up doing like the spin cycle, like Tai Domi, where you're constantly spinning and spinning. Is that a style that you preferred, or did it just seem to end up that way? Uh, no, that just kind of started happening. I remember some of the guys on the team used to, used to call it the spin cycle, so yeah. uh, throw them in the spin cycle. It was just because I, I – I pretty much at that time I was just throwing with right hands. So I was constantly, uh, pulling that way. And it just, I was pulling that way and just throwing with my right hand. I, I didn't throw lefts cause I knew I did a little bit earlier on and I just, I, I didn't throw a good left. I, I was a lot more comfortable throwing rights. I could play a little better defense and that was just kind of something that happened due to, I guess pulling guys hard. Uh, it certainly wasn't an intentional move. It wasn't like a, a gimmick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Something like that. It just kind of <laughs> it would just end up happening. Now, like I said, that year, um, you know, a lot of times guys who who and, and again, I, I would say you're more of a power forward than an enforcer. Uh, you didn't mind dropping the gloves, but you also added a little bit more to that. And there are a lot of times where guys get called up and they don't really make the most of their opportunity. And and as I said, I think that year in Bridgeport, you absolutely went above and beyond, made the most of your opportunity. And then in that that summer, it was June 1st, 2012, you ended up signing a, a contract with the Islanders. Uh, I mean, was that like a, a huge moment for you finally? Like, you know, you've discussed uh, so far d- during your journey about how you, you know, the, signing the contract and here you go, you finally sign a contract, NHL two-way deal with the Islanders. Uh, what was that feeling like? Um, it was, it was a bit of validation, I guess you could say. Um, yeah, see, those are, those are kind of tricky ones because I, I felt like, I was already, I was already knocking at the door, and I felt like that season um, in March, I, I got put on a full American League one way. Uh, I remember that specifically because I felt like I'd really, I'd really made it out of the East Coast finally, and that seemed like it was a pretty tall task. Um, 
And then to get the NHL deal was, it was definitely rewarding. Mm -hmm. um, I think at that time you could go on Cap Geek and I, they gave me a, uh, a $5,000 signing bonus so mm -hmm. that um, I could, so I could train for the song. I could pay my trainer and my agent. <laughs> so my, my buddies could all look on cap geek and they thought that was just fucking hilarious. Like by the time, by the time taxes and shit came, I, it was literally, it was gone before I even had it, Yeah, but it was still cool. Just to, I said, Hey, you can at least look up and see me on cap geek fellas. <laughs> now that, uh, that training camp, you went, uh, you went training camp with the Islanders. And again, it's not, it's not your first NHL camp, but, you know, based on the theme of my show here, uh, any memorable moments from that training camp with the Islanders? Uh, yeah, it was a lockout. <laughs> oh, <laughs> very memorable. <laughs> I forget uh, these lockouts. As I get older, I forget the lockouts. Yeah, it was super memorable because there wasn't any, any NHL players there. Um, so we did the, uh, we did the camp on Long Island mm -hmm. and, and it was just us. It was just the American League players, which was, um, it was cool in a sense that all, all the brass and all the GMs were just watching us, so you could get a little more evaluation done. Um, you were you were working with the coaches from both, or from your team, and then the GMs could at least watch and scout. Um, couldn't have any contact with them, but. Um, yeah, it was weird. It was unfortunate. The one year that I had a contract, it was, yeah. a, it was a lockout. Um, but I remember, I remember pretty vividly when, when it finally did end. Um, and we had a, well, the, the American league for that first half of the year was, was phenomenal. Like yeah. it was, it wasn't quite as good as I think the previous lockout. Cause it had some different rules where you couldn't send, uh, certain guys down, um, but still, there was there was a lot of good players. There was we had a ton of good players down in, in Bridgeport. I know that, so it was a bit of a lock jam. So when things opened up finally, when the lockout ended, it was it was a bit of a relief for a lot of guys because it kind of uh, made some roster space and, and opened up some room for a lot of people. So um, when uh, you and Adam Huxley are sharing the locker room, do you talk about the, the couple of scraps that you had? Yeah, yeah, we were um, we were buddies by yeah. then, mm -hmm. uh, and Huxley had played in Vegas before I was there. So some of the guys that that I played with were buddies with him then. So it wasn't like he was uh, someone that I hadn't crossed paths with. But mm -hmm. just from playing against him and, and fighting him, we we chit chatter right away. And that's usually kind of how it generally goes. There's yeah. there's rarely. Uh, like bad blood with mm -hmm. guys in the scraps. It's all fairly respectful and mm -hmm. uh, just on a competition level. So when you get to be teammates, you know, you know where it's coming from. And, and generally those are the, the guys that understand what you're going through better than anyone else. So you, yeah. you generally have a good relationship with them. So me and Huck's got along really well. Um, I remember he, he got in a scrap with, with Cam Jansen while he was called up. Yeah. And, uh, he called it one of his bucket list fights. Like he couldn't, he couldn't have been prouder to be able to finally get Cam Jansen crossed off his bucket list fight. I thought that was hilarious. Like yeah. that was coming from a true, a true scrapper that you got a, a list of guys that you can't wait to, to get in a, in a tilt with. That's awesome. So similar to the year before, 
Bridgeport's a very tough team. Uh, different cast of characters, basically, besides yourself and Galley. Uh, one of the guys who joined the organization was uh, Nathan McIver. You remember playing with Nathan? Yep, absolutely. Um, uh, of course, I played against him while he was in Providence, mm -hmm. uh, and he's Galley's cousin. So oh, yeah. <laughs> go figure. Yeah. Uh, and, and that year they played together. They, same thing, it seemed like, I, I think I ended up third behind the two of them in fights, and I was up over 20. You had 21. So, so I think you had three guys on a team up over 20 fights now. It's just, I mean, it's unheard of, and that's not that long ago. No. Yep. Um, but Kiever was an awesome teammate, just like Galley. They're cut mm -hmm. from the same cloth, both good PEI boys that, um, that love love playing the game, sticking up for their teammates. And uh, I think they really enjoyed getting to play together uh, as pros. They played against each other a bunch, and uh, they got a pretty close relationship. So it was pretty cool to, to see them get to play together for a season. There's another guy that played there that uh, guys have had uh, mixed opinions on, uh, and that's Andre Padan. Uh, I've heard really good things about him, and I have heard some not-so-good things about him. Uh, how would you find him as a teammate? I wasn't with him for very long. Uh, he, I believe, just was uh, like a post-junior uh, player, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. I think he just came uh, for the last half or last bit of the year. Mm -hmm. um, and I had nothing but good interactions with him, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. Um, he was super nice and respectful to me. And I think mm -hmm. um, playing against him, he was he was one of the tougher um, younger kids at that time, but yeah. I, I didn't spend a whole lot of time with them, but uh, I had nothing but good things to say to him about him, to be honest. Yeah. No, I'm a fan. I, I like him. I wish he would have got more time here. Mm. Uh, I'm glad he ended up getting uh, some NHL games with Vancouver. I wish they would have been here though. So yeah. Yeah. He was definitely a tough kid. Um, you know, he's, he was huge. His arm, yeah. arm long and massive and, and he could skate. So uh, not surprised that that he was going to turn into a uh, NHL player, and you know, I think I think he's full time in Russia, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not yeah, sure. He's KHL. Trying to yeah. get a hold of him uh, through uh, Instagram, but I don't know if uh, I don't know if he. Well, he doesn't know who I am. I never met him, but uh, hopefully, I'm trying to get. I, I like to expand the show. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. get guys from all over. But the last interview I did was with the player named Mike Dalhusen, who was uh, who was actually uh, uh, born in the Netherlands, and uh, he's playing in Slovakia now. So I kind of like, uh, you know, to get a different perspective from from everyone. I'd love to get Andre yeah. on the show, especially that he's still active playing in the KHL. Um, mm -hmm. One of the one of the fights you had that year, we, you had mentioned Worcester uh, being a very tough team. Uh, you fought a guy named Mike Brennan. And uh, you landed some pretty healthy shots against him. I don't know if you remember that one. Yep. Yeah, I do. That was, uh, I think we were in, it was like a, maybe a military appreciation night or something to that effect. Because mm -hmm. we were wearing like camel jerseys. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I remember Matt Donovan kind of started something by their bench. And, and then he got split off, I think it was with, Taylor Doherty, I said it was something like six seven, mm -hmm. and and Dono just couldn't believe that, you know, he starts his whole melee. Well, then he's got to 
get paired off with someone like that's sometimes how it works if mm, right mm. you know if everyone else is tied up that's the way it goes you get left with the big man uh <laughs> yeah so i i got in a scrap with brent and i ended up paired off with him and and because it was kind of tied off for a bit there's no linesman to break it up so it's yep. going on for a little bit uh yeah. an, another good fight you had that year and it's actually uh when I when I put out my my podcast, I always do kind of like a poster, uh, you know, uh, like a graphic poster that I put on all social media. And the picture that I'm using for yours is from this fight against Darcy Zajac of Albany. Okay, you remember that one? Uh, I I don't really remember the specifics of it, but what you you did very well in the photo that I'm using. You had just landed a nice right. You'll see it. Okay, you'll, yeah, you'll so see I, it. I, I that picture, yeah, that's yeah. that is a good picture. Um. So yeah, feel free to use that graphic. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's already done up. It's already <laughs> done. I'll send it to you before I post it. Um, now, uh, you know, unfortunately sometimes real life collides with sports and, um, Newtown, Connecticut and Bridgeport are only separated by about 20 miles. And you were with Bridgeport when the Sandy Hook tragedy occurred. Um, and obviously, you know, Connecticut and Long Island were not that far away. And, and obviously it was news worldwide, but geographically being so close to, Newtown as you were when you were at Bridgeport like what was uh, that had to be such a such a sad time and such a tragic time to be so close to that area yeah that was um that was that was profound um I remember uh one of the games after uh every one of the players had uh one of the child's names on our jerseys. So we, we didn't wear our own names. We, we wore yep, one of theirs. Yep. Um, it was, it was tough. It was tough to, um, to play that game really knowing what some of these other families were going through. Um, as a lot of us were kind of, were, were Canadian kids that, uh, a lot of us hadn't been that close to, um, like violence of that nature and uh we don't necessarily see a lot of uh like the kind of the gun violence that that had happened and um i remember guys were just torn up and yeah. and it just became uh it came a little a little real for us um as we were trying to reconcile playing a game um during a tragedy like this it was it was tough for a lot of the guys, um, and yeah, it really hit close to home just because it was it, it was right there, and yeah. Um, yeah, it was it was an awful thing. Uh, I remember that uh, quite clearly. That and we felt you know completely helpless, really. Like um, we 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 wanted to to do a tribute in some way, but you know we didn't want to. Um, put the families in an uncomfortable spot. So you just, you just don't know what, what to do. You don't know how, how people are going to feel in that circumstance. We just wanted to, uh, just acknowledge that we were thinking about them. Like, like just about everyone else was at the time. And, um, you just, you just don't think you can do anything to make people feel better in, in a circumstance like that. So, right. um, we, you know, we tried our best and, and, um, and the truth is, I, I I just don't know if um, anything you can do at that time is gonna um, 
change someone's feelings. It's just it's just a horrible thing to to have to go through. And the game that you're referencing was uh, that was December 22nd of 2012, and it was against uh, Adirondack Phantoms. And the reason why I'm giving the date is because there are highlights of that game that are on YouTube. And um, you know, like you said, you wore uh, everyone wore a, a different last name on the jersey from from the children. And uh, it kind of was when I was researching this, and I remember, um, you know, Galley had a fight in that game, and and you know, obviously it's sort of like muscle memory for your brain. Like when you see a Brett Gallant fight, and you see the back of his jersey, you're expecting to see Gallant, and then when you see a name that it's not Gallant, and then it just registers with you why you guys were doing that. And and I urge everybody to check it out on YouTube because it's something that nobody's ever going to forget, but obviously you get wrapped up in your own lives and it just kind of, you know, when I was, when I was researching this, I kind of had to take a few minutes and just be like, wow, that's unbelievable. And I guess my question for you would be like that, that night that you did that when you're in the locker room and you just get sight of that Jersey, like that had a, you had a, I would imagine maybe take your breath away for a few minutes. Yeah, it was, um, it just felt like, it felt very heavy to to be carrying that. Uh, I remember a few of the families, we invited um, all the families that wanted to come to the games. I think um, maybe four or five of them ended up coming. And, um, you know, we went and uh, just met them after briefly and uh, just said hello. Um, and you just that that was kind of all we could really do is just um just let them know that we were thinking about them and um you know we were sorry but like i said the reality is i just don't think there's anything you can say in in a time like that and um and you kind of you know part of you feels guilt that you know you're going to continue on playing the game the next day and um and things are going to get back to normal for us and and they're going to live with this for the rest of their lives. So you, you kind of felt guilt from that. And, uh, it was just, it was a really tough thing that, um, that the players, you know, we were, we were happy to try and reach out and and help any way we could. And, uh, you know, you just, you just don't know what, what you can do. Yeah. Um, getting back to hockey and it's weird because it seems like I've done three interviews in a row where there's been some sort of, uh, tragedy, that I had to ask someone about whether it was personal or, or something like this. And it's just, I always say it feels weird saying, all right, well, we'll get back to hockey. Cause it almost, I almost feel like we should, you know, a moment of silence or something, but, uh, but you know, the, the reality is we are going to, we're talking about your career and you know, nothing we can do right now. You know, you know, it's always weird to say it, but um, if we do get back to hockey, then uh, that January, you participated, uh, you did play at Nassau Coliseum. You participated in the blue and white scrimmage uh, at the Coliseum. Do you remember that game? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, I remember because a lot of teams were doing a similar variation in that um, the American League team would come up and and then they would mix the teams up. You'd have basically an inter-squad game with the NHL and the American League teams. Uh, we just decided to go straight. Our Bridgeport team, we were going to play uh, the Islanders. Mm-hmm. Um, and it probably, I mean, we ended up, I think we ended up winning the game. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it felt, <laughs> felt kind of weird because these guys hadn't <laughs> been playing for months. Yeah. Um, and... 
the fans were obviously there to see anyone but us. <laughs> so then they, they put the game to a shootout and I think they kept the score going. So if you scored in the shootout, you got a goal mm-hmm. and you know, we, we were up maybe one from the game and then they scored two in the shootout. So then they announced, okay, the Islanders are, are your winners for the game? <laughs> we thought, what the fuck? What the hell was that? Uh, there's a nice picture of you, uh, you and Matt Martin, uh, on the, on the internet from that game. So, uh, Oh yeah. Yeah. Two pretty physical. Oh, I mean, as you might imagine, I love Matt Martin. So, uh, mm-hmm. so, uh, it was cool to see the picture of you guys, uh, playing against each other in that picture. So, um, so now the, at the season, uh, at the end of the season, uh, did you have discussions with the Islanders about resigning or, or was it uh, a mutual parting of the ways? Uh, I had a real good chat with them in, in my exit meeting. Um, and they said, uh, they felt like I was going to get a good opportunity with another team. Um, and if, if nothing came up then they would be happy to circle back, but they felt like I deserved a a shot to, to go to a team that was, um, going to hopefully have an avenue to, to progress to the NHL. And, and so they, they gave me uh, well wishes and and some good references to to anyone that was looking and um, unfortunately for me I, I ended up going to another spot that I was very fond of in in St John so it, it worked out very well for me. Did and you went to camp with Winnipeg uh, that year, correct? Yep. So part of part of the deal uh, when I signed with St John's was. Um, an agreement that I would get in, invited to to main camp. Um, and Zach Redman, who was my teammate in Ferris State, he was one of my best friends at the time. Um, he was he was with Winnipeg then, and uh, so that was pretty cool that uh, I got to go out to camp and we shared a room for the first bit. And <laughs> it was kind of funny though you <clears throat> you check in for your uh, hotel and. Um, you know, main camp starts and whatever. And usually it's about 10 days to two weeks to the first cut down the American league camp starts and then everyone will head out there. So I go to check in at the hotel and, uh, give them my name and they say, Oh, Mr. Riley. Yep. We've got you checking out on, uh, September 27th. Does that sound right? (laughs) I guess so. (laughs) Oh, geez. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds just right. That sounds pretty ominous. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so I got 13 days here. Let's make the most of it. So again, one of the, another physical coach, a, a coach that you played for that had a reputation as a physical player when he played, uh, how'd you like playing for Keith McCambridge? Yeah, he was he was phenomenal. Um him and him and Tomo actually I thought were were very similar. Um, in in certain aspects, and then di- different in, in some as well. Uh, but both very very detailed, um, very uh, very honest and upfront with their players. Uh, so you kind of knew where you stood with with both of them, um, and they were super. Uh, I would say uh aggressive but um always in control of their emotions as well so um i remember there was a few times that keith healthy scratched me and 
he just pulled me into the office and he just told me straight up that I'm not playing because I'm, I'm not doing the things that I need to, to stay here. I remember one time, I think he said to me, he goes, uh, you're not going to be in the lineup tonight. Uh, and it's because you look like you're very comfortable. And I'm not saying that in a good way. Like you look like you, <laughs> you know, you look like you feel like you belong here. And that's, that's not, that's not the way it should be for you. And I, I said, you're absolutely right. And, you know, went and sat in the stands and thought about it for a few games and came back and, and started playing with uh, some of the passion that um, kind of got me to, to where I was up to that point. And that's kind of, uh, you know, for a little bit there, I, I, I was exactly, I was comfortable. I felt like, you know, I'd, I'd put in my time and I've earned my spot in the lineup. And the reality is for guys like me, you, you never, you can never feel comfortable. You should never have that mindset or, or it's going to be gone just as quick as you got it. So, um, I needed to hear that from him. Um, and he, he knew exactly, um, what he could say to me to, to kind of get the proper reaction out of me. He knew that I would respond well to, to hearing the truth and, um, sometimes some, some tough honesty is, is just what guys need. And, uh, I, I found that I was someone that would respond well to, to hearing it from, from him and, and hearing it straight up like that. And that year you guys made it all the way to the Calder cup finals. And I knew that you didn't win, but the one thing I didn't realize, uh, was that you lost the three losses that you had at home were all overtime losses. I, I don't, I wonder if that's ever happened before. Well, I hope not. I hope not. <laughs> Yeah, I hate to bring it up, but I have to ask you about that. <laughs> um, it was it was the closest five game series you'll probably ever see, uh, and so it was one one going back home to St. John's. We felt like we had a huge home ice advantage on the Rock. Like we had played great at home, um, we had a good atmosphere there, and there was three games in a row. Um, we were in control of for sure two of them, um, and just kind of lost it. But, um, that Texas team was, was phenomenal. And you see now some of those guys saying that yeah, some of those guys kind of graduate and, and stick up there. Um, Dallas had kind of the same facts. It was one of the guys that won the cup there with, with Texas and um, Lindell, I believe was another guy that was on that team. They just had a good team, so it was it was evenly matched. But but they were probably the better team in the end. Now, back in the day of the St. John's Maple Leafs, the the American League had a division with only teams in the Maritimes, so the Leafs' travel was cut considerably because you would they played teams like Fredericton and Moncton. Uh, but in, when you were there, by the time you were there, you were the lone Maritime team, and you ended up playing in a division with all teams from New England. So what was that like with the travel? Uh, yeah, the travel was tough. That was probably the toughest part of playing there. Um we would still play Toronto a good amount of times. So they would do kind of a crossover. So we would play Toronto and Hamilton four times each. Um, and then we would, for our road trips, we would usually do about a 10-day swing, and we'd play six games. So we would fly to 
usually Boston, and we kind of hub in Providence. And we'd play Providence, and we'd bus up to Portland, play Portland, Manchester, um, Bridgeport, Worcester. So once we got down there, it wasn't bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was tough. Those those flights were long. Yeah. And uh, and you know some of the some of the flights in we couldn't we couldn't touch down. I remember we would uh, we would circle the airport in St. John's after the three hour flight from Toronto and circle for forty five and Ugh. and then the pilot comes on and say, "Sorry, everyone, we're gonna have to circle back to Toronto." <laughs> oh, you got to be kidding! Oh, there was a couple. We had to go back to Halifax once, and you're at the end of a road trip you know, two weeks, you just, you're just like, just give it a go, buddy, whatever happens, (laughs) you know, just go through the clouds and hope for the best. But, uh, I I think it, it probably made us a closer teams. We spent so much time together. We, you know, we spent a lot of time traveling and, and going through some tough flights and all that stuff. And by the time the end of the year rolled around, we just couldn't, you know, we just couldn't get enough of it. We just loved it. We we were happy to to play in Texas because it was about thirty five degrees down there. Yeah. Sorry, a uh, hundred degrees. Yeah, I was gonna say do the conversion. Yeah. You might confuse some people. <laughs> <me>. Sorry, hundred <laughs> degrees. Yeah. So we were getting down to laying by the pool, and we go back up to Newfoundland. There was still snow on the ground. Yeah. So the, the longer we went, we were at least getting some some good patio weather to to enjoy some time outside. Uh, going into your second year in St. John's, there was a player that you played with that I'm a fan of, uh, that I actually would like to get on the show at some point. He's, he's currently playing, um, in, he's playing in Worcester, uh, right now for the Islanders. He's coast league affiliate. That's Mike Cornell. Uh, do you have any memories of playing with Mike? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, he was, he was a good competitor, very, very tough, good, humble guy that, um, played a good a good tough brand defense and you know a little bit undersized and he would he would play tough minutes penalty kill and then he would get some great scraps he was an awesome fighter he would be awesome on the show he's yeah, a good fella really yeah. like cornell yeah i definitely want to get him on the show big i'm a big fan of his so i'll definitely reach out to him this season more than anything so we talked about your year the first year in bridgeport where i, I thought you had a phenomenal year fighting this year, it seemed like everybody you fought was at least three or four inches bigger than you. And I guess I don't know if it's just as the younger kids are coming in, they just come in and they're bigger. Uh, but it just seemed like this was this was one of the years, and I think the the following year also was the same way, where everybody you fought was just massive. They were just these big guys. And uh, one of the guys you fought was with Lehigh Valley, uh, Oliver Loritzen, and you did really well against him, and he looked like he was a giant. Yeah, he was huge. Um yeah, I guess in the same way that Galley fought a couple inches up, I, I was never, I was never one of the taller guys, so I was always giving up a bit of height. Mm-hmm. But I, I got long arms. Yeah. <laughs> I, never, I never quite grew into them, so I think <laughs> sometimes that surprises people. But um, I was usually giving up some height for sure, and um, yeah, I, I guess I just found a way to survive. And I, a lot of it is is because of galley like i learned um some some tricks and tips from him that he got really good at um utilizing some of the um different angles and 
and pulling guys in and, and just using using his uh, size, even though it was a disadvantage, sometimes it would be an advantage by the things that he would do. So I learned a few things from him that definitely helped when I got to fight in some taller players. And another guy you fought that year, you fought him twice, and this is the guy that I was uh, referencing when we were talking about Bobby Robbins. Uh, you may have fought him as many times as Bobby or right up there, and that's Mark Lewis, who was with Portland at the time. You, yeah, you fought him yeah. a bunch of times. Yeah, he he. I was I, I thought that's who you were gonna say because yeah. he was second, and he was a teammate this year with me in Cardiff. And oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. He was uh, he was one of my good friends over there, and like I said, he's someone that's. Um, and if you looked at our our fight cards, um, it's all the same people, you know. And that's just kind of how it was then. You, mm-hmm. if you're in that. Uh, northeast division you basically all fought each other it was just kind of like a rotation mm. uh, there was a uh, a couple of games against Worcester that year uh, in one of the games you absolutely free trained Gus Young and then uh, when Taylor Fadoon stepped in and, and good on him for stepping in for a teammate uh, you kind of gave it to him pretty good and then the next game there was uh, Jimmy Bono was there waiting for you and you guys went right off the opening face off so I guess the first question is, were you expecting someone to come after you? And the second question is, uh, was there a conversation between you and Bono uh, prior to the gloves dropping? Uh, yes. Yes, <laughs> I did. Um, and I think my coach did as well. So, Keith, I think those are some of the things that uh, he really understood. Um, he didn't want me to sit around and have to think about it so he knew that they were starting uh they would have started bono so he just said you know what i'm just going to give you the start if you want it and i said absolutely let's get it out out of the way Mm -hmm. and so he put me on the starting lineup and just you know let me um let me just handle the business which was which was cool because he he had a good feel for the game and um, he knew exactly where things were at and he, he asked if I wanted to get out of the way and I said yes. So uh, it was it was a brief conversation. I knew that, that he was going to be starting and that's exactly how it was going to go. So uh, I didn't know, however, that the referee was going to kick us out of the game, which he shouldn't have done. Yeah. Um, he, he said, you're not allowed to do that. And I said, you need to read the rule books because we can fucking do whatever we want when that puck drops. And yeah. uh, he kicked us out. <laughs> that, was it. So that was it. And um, I think Keith went to the league and got the game misconducts taken out. Because if you have a certain amount of misconducts, it can end up leading to suspensions and stuff. So he made sure that that got rescinded because it, it shouldn't have been there. Yeah, I was going to say that couldn't have uh, sat well with him you know, he started you for that reason, you know, like you say, he understands the job and then it's not like you guys went before the puck was dropped. So I could imagine that, uh, he had to be pretty pissed about that. Not with you, of course, but with the officials. Yeah, no, he, he wasn't happy with the yeah. officials and neither was their coach and yeah. neither was, uh, me or Jan- like no one understood it. it was, it was one of the more bizarre things I've ever seen really. Like it just, there was no rhyme or reason to it. He just made his own rule up and tossed us. Well, you know, to look at me, I don't look like I'm that smart, but the reason why I asked you about that conversation with uh, the potential conversation with Bono 
was because the next season you found yourself in training camp with the Calgary Flames. And one of the stories that went around that exhibition season was a conversation that you had with Brandon Prust uh, prior to your fight with him. And he was with Vancouver at the time. Could you kind of tell us all about that conversation you had with him? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it was off face off. I think they had just scored. So they went up one, nothing. Um, and I just said, Hey, Pressy, can I, can I get a fight here? And he goes, do you need one? And I said, yeah, I do. Like it's, this is my, this is my chance. And he goes, all right. He goes, are you a righty or a lefty? <laughs> I said, I said, I'm a righty. Yeah. He goes, okay, let's go. And I thought that was pretty cool because he, he was on like a million dollar contract and then some, he, he didn't have to do anything. He didn't have to look at me. Mm-hmm. He, his spot was solidified in that lineup. Uh, and, and he could play too. It's, you know, he was, he was a good player as well. So he, he was pretty good about that. That's kind of, that's kind of something that stuck with me. Cause that was, uh, that was pretty cool. And just to, just to even do that, which is kind of weird to say that, uh, you know, you're thankful that someone obliged to fight request, but that's the reality is, is that he, he didn't have to, and that he knew that, um, that it would have meant something to me in it. Uh, yeah. So that's kind of cool. Well, trust me, anyone that's listening to this show and, and myself, we all understand, you know, the game, you know, the enforcer game and everything. So we, uh, trust me, anyone listening to this totally, totally understands the conversation and totally understands your gratitude there. Um, Another another team, another tough coach uh, in Stockton. Your assistant coach was Todd Gill. Yeah, he was uh, he was awesome, mm-hmm. um, and the head coach actually was Ryan Huska. Was um, okay. Was one of the guys that I grew up uh, watching with uh, the Blazers teams in Kamloops, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Giller was awesome, and you know he would. He would get in there early, get his video work done. So two o'clock rolls around, he could he could get out and swing the golf clubs, and that was the best part about being in California at that time. <laughs> uh, similar, and this is again what I'm talking about. I think the only guy that you fought this season with Stockton that was like a regular size guy was Ryan Horvat, and you did very well against him. But everyone else you fought that year were just giants. Uh, Brennan Evans of Texas. Uh, Stu Bickle twice with San Diego and Curtis McDermott. I mean, these guys are just massive guys. Yeah. And I think, uh, Maggio as well was another one. That, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was about the time I was like, uh, this is about enough. <laughs> <laughs> these guys, these guys are too big. These guys are too hungry. I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that was interesting that year is you actually participated in a, an outdoor game uh, against Bakersfield. And uh, that was on, uh, was it the Giants minor league team there in Stockton? Am I right about that? It was, um, it was in Sacramento. Oh, I Sacramento, think it was, yeah. no, yeah, it was in Sacramento, but I think it was the Giants. Okay. Triple um, A affiliate. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but it rained. <laughs> well, I, and, and the thing I was going to say is all these outdoor games, you know, the winter classic and all this other stuff, they're all played in the middle of the winter where you might get snow and everything. And I was wondering uh, what that, so it did rain, but did you play outdoors the next day? 
Yeah. So it, it rained that night. Mm. And so they had to postpone it. Mm. Like they didn't have a choice. We were, we were out there like this, this isn't happening. Mm. And the cool thing was is that we had, we were dressing in their locker room. Mm-hmm. And so they had a batting cage underneath. So we were all just underneath the cage, uh, taking cuts and, and killing time because, you know, they were waiting to see if it was going to clear up. So we were just down there pissing around. And then, um, they had a, they had a contingency plan in place in case it happened. So the game happened the next afternoon, I think around one, but it, it, it was unfortunate because the crowd was, you know, maybe a half or a quarter of what it was originally planned for. There was, there was going to be a good, maybe 20 or so thousand and then it ended up maybe being i don't know if there's even seven or eight so it was unfortunate but that's kind of what you get for playing an outdoor game in california how was the ice terrible yeah it was terrible terrible and uh like the the glass was all fogging up so it's just constant um condensation around the, the entire rink and the fans were sitting uh you know, parallel with it. So they couldn't see the game. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was, uh, it was a good idea, but tough execution. Hopefully, uh, hopefully they learn something from it and just keep the games indoors in Cali from now on. <laughs> so but still, I mean, it's a cool experience to, to get to be a part of it. Just, it was too bad that it went down the way it did. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, we're going to, we're going to, first of all, thank you very much for, uh, hanging in with me here, going through your career. I appreciate the time. Um, I have to ask you at any point during your career and, and, and I don't think it would have happened prior to this because you were still doing the NHL training camp thing. And, and we're going to touch on the fact that you went to the UK, but uh, for a guy that that was in the minors for, for the majority of his career now um, there's a league up in Quebec, the LNAH, were they ever interested in you? Did they ever contact you? No, no. Okay. Um, I, wouldn't have entertained it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what, that was my next question. Cause uh, you know, it's, it's not a league for everybody. Okay. Yeah. So I was wondering if, if anyone out there had, had ever reached out to you, but I guess not. Well, um, although some guys that I've played with have, have gone back and, and played games, um, while they're still working. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I was from Quebec, maybe a different story, but, uh, it's, it's not a place that I would, uh, or a league, sorry, that I would um, interrupt life and, and move away from home to to go and pursue at this stage of my career anyways. Gotcha. So how did you end up in Belfast? Um, so I started looking around uh, in Europe. I, I knew I was um, looking to go overseas, uh, and I knew I wanted to, to do the master's program, and UK was the only league that was offering at the time. Um so I kind of uh, was looking a little bit late in the summer and a lot of teams were kind of um, basically already full. You know, if you don't sign early, um, it's it's tough to get a spot. Uh, and Belfast kind of offered me a good opportunity to to be able to play again, play some good minutes on the power play and get a master's education while I was doing it. So I, I jumped at the opportunity and, uh, it's probably one of the best decisions I've made in my career. I was, um, super rejuvenated to go over and, and play again. Uh, fans 
absolutely loved the game and um and and loved the team in belfast and the city was amazing so it was it was an awesome experience and then to to get back into school and and do some studying again was um was definitely worthwhile for me now uh, at the time you know with the nhl and, and hockey here in north america kind of trying to phase out the fighting um a lot of guys were going over to the uk because the uk was still a league where uh even though maybe it wasn't as prominent as it was a few years prior you still you know very tough league and you had to have one of the toughest teams uh we already talked about you know matt nickerson you talked about jimmy vandermeer you also had adam keefe who uh who's i would imagine is probably a legend in uh, belfast at this point maybe not at this point (laughs) in the career but now i would say so Oh yeah, no, he's he's absolutely a legend. Um, so he he was my captain my first year, and then the next two years I played, he was the head coach, and he would still he was still getting the biggest cheer of, of anyone uh, when he was introduced before the games. He's uh, he's done a lot for for that city, and uh, and they loved the way he played. You know, he was he was super passionate. Uh, wore his heart on his sleeve, and, and that's what they loved in their players. So he was uh, he was loved as a player, and even more so now as a coach, as he's brought them a couple trophies. And um, you know, hopefully, when this uh, pandemic is kind of passed, and hopefully the league can get back to where it was, and uh, he can get back to doing what he loves. So uh, as you mentioned earlier, when I brought him up uh, your Springfield time, I, I got to ask. So you walk in there and you see uh, big Matt Nickerson. He's got the big beard going. He's got the Mohawk going at this point. Like what, I, I, obviously, like I said, I don't, you know, Matt's a good friend of mine. I don't need to know any craziness off the ice, but you have any good, a good Matt Nickerson on the ice uh, losing his mind story at all? <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I guess I do. <laughs> It wasn't from when he was with us in Belfast. Though. Oh, I know what you're talking. Yep. Oh, yeah. Everyone knows that other one. I didn't know yeah. if there was anything. Uh, I, I, I mean, I'm wondering if it, things ever got out of hand. Let's say, and maybe you found yourself and Kiefer and the Vandermeer and uh, and Nick are out on the ice at the same time. You know what? Um, I think just because we had so many tough guys, there wasn't a whole lot of a whole lot of nonsense. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Nicker could mostly just intimidate guys. They weren't coming near him. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, I think people were mostly on their best behavior when we were in town. Um, Nicker would just kind of uh, look their way, and that was kind of <laughs> the end of it for the most part. <laughs> now, that year, um, you know, your first year over there, you ended up being the team MVP and you won the player players player award. So I guess you kind of acclimated to that style of play. And again, it was a similar style that you played, but I imagine you must've got a ton of ice time. You scored 56 points in 52 games. It seemed like maybe you just slotted right in and you didn't miss a beat. Uh, yeah. Like I said, it was, it was kind of rejuvenating to, to kind of get back to playing like I was in college and junior and, um, playing playing big minutes and being relied on to, to produce offense again where kind of in the American League I was just kind of comfortable and settled in the, a bottom six role where um, yeah maybe if I was given a different opportunity I, I could have succeeded but I found my path to advance to the next level was going to be in the bottom six role so I was going to do that and I was going to 
do it to the best of my ability. Um, when I got overseas and I got a chance just to, you know, worry about uh, offense and and, um, and doing that so whole side of the game, it, it just it felt like it was just a ton of fun again. I almost kind of forgot how fun it was to to play the game sometimes and um and so that was that was cool that that just kind of uh made it easier to come to the rink some days and, and the games were more fun and just felt like uh i just wanted to play hockey again and that, that was a cool feeling so one of the things i like to do when i when i have an interview coming up is i like to reach out to people who uh the, the subject the uh, guest has played with or someone in the organization so i did reach out to a few people from belfast uh, one of the people who I, I was really, and obviously I never met these people in person, but through Nicker, you know, maybe an online sort of friendship. One of those people is Laura Small, who I would imagine is probably the unsung hero of the organization. And uh, when I told her I was interviewing you, she was all pumped and everything. And uh, I asked her what she remembered most about you. And uh, she said two things. One was how you always kept a level head in any situation. And no matter what was going on, you were always kind of the guy that maybe could take a step back, keep a level head, even if there was chaos going around you. And the other thing she said was that you may have terrified some people in certain situations with your massive upper body. <laughs> <laughs> See, that was the, the intimidation factor. That's how, that's how the Belfast Giants would roll around. <laughs> yeah, I'd take the warm-up with no shirt on, right? <laughs> Yeah, that's intimidation. That's what uh, Tony Twist used to say you do. You'd sit on the bench. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> now, uh, Kiefer gave me some some good info, and I try to keep this uh, try to keep this chronological. But I'm not sure where this fit in. But one of the things he said to ask you about was your experience at the Premier League darts event that was over there in the UK. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So that was my end of my first year. Okay. Um, and the, the way the school the school year ran past the season, so the guys that were in school would stay into May. Season would end in April, and um, and Kiefer lived over there. So he, he's married to a girl from there, uh, and he ended up getting two tickets to the Premier League darts, and I'd just seen it on TV, and it looked just like an absolute riot. So we got we got seats and these seats ended up being right on the floor. So we we're right in the middle of it all. And you could, you could go up and it's not like, I don't know if you can do it in, in the U S or not, but if you go to a concert or something here, you can grab two beers and that's it. So every time you go up, you can get two beers each mm-hmm. and that's it. That's similar here. Yeah. Yeah. And fair enough because after seeing this, you could go up there and you could, uh, you could get four beers on each side. So you could take eight, draft beers back to your seat and just sit them on the table. Look like you're carrying two lunch pails. (laughs) And so each guy would do that. Your table would just be full. And, you know, halfway through the darts, everyone's just piled. You looked around and every single person was like annihilated, but it's only in the city, you know, one night a year. So it's like, it's a big event. It was unbelievable. It's probably the best live event I've gone to. I would love to see it over in North America. I just, you know, I don't know why it, 
it hasn't caught over here, but mm. for one night a year, it's it's one of the best. I guess it's probably because you can't take a suitcase of beer back to your table. Maybe that's what, <laughs> maybe that's that might have something draw. to do with it. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's the draw. But yeah, anyway, it's a phenomenal event, and uh, uh, Keeper put on a good show. <laughs> and, uh, uh, highly recommend it. If anyone ever goes to the UK and get tickets to the darts, it's a must see event. Now the next season. Uh, there, Nicker is gone. He went to Milton Keynes. Like you said, Kiefer is the coach now. Uh, Vandermeer is still there. And there's a guy who I, 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 when I was doing this, I never really asked anyone about him, but I saw his name. He had, I guess, decent penalty minutes. I know nothing about this guy, uh, but he's got a pretty original name, Spiro Gulakos. Yeah. What's his deal? <laughs> Spiro. What is his deal? We still don't know what Spiro's deal is. <laughs> okay. Um, he, he's a beauty. He was, uh, he was just there for the one year and, uh, he made a good name for himself. Uh, he had a, he had a short fuse on him and he, there was a run there at the start of the year. I think he, he was kicked out about three out of five games. He was in the middle of everything. So, um, and he's a great player too, so he was he was just killing us because he wouldn't be in the lineup. And the and the thing over there is, if an import gets suspended for a game, you can't dress another import. So you're down for the next game of an import spot. Okay. So it it really hurts you. Um, but he he ended up finding his way later on. He's a beauty. Yeah, uh, he had a good he had a good run over there for the year he was there. Nice. So Kiefer didn't just tell me about the dart event. He did have some really nice things to say about you. One of the things he said was, uh, you were a great teammate and leader. Uh, he handpicked you to take over the C when he transitioned from player to coach. He said that you were a no brainer that would lead, uh, to lead us to trophies, which you did. Uh, he said you were also great for him as a rookie coach, making mistakes and finding his way. He said to know that you had controlled the dressing room and that he could trust you was massive for him his first couple of years of coaching. So, um, you know, obviously I'm sure it's a mutual respect between you and Kiefer. Yeah, those are, those are some nice words. Obviously he was, uh, he was someone I had a lot of respect for. And I mean, everyone did obviously that was in the room with him, but, um, you could see he's on a good career trajectory as a coach. Now, um, you look what his brother's done with the Maple Leafs. That's, Uh, it just seems to be in their genetics. They know how to connect to the players, and um, and he definitely puts the work in. So he's he's going to have a good career as a coach. It was kind of uh, I know it was something that came up quicker than he was expecting. He was he was still kind of expecting to play, mm-hmm. um, but you know, kind of the same with kind of a lot of guys are experiencing now. Sometimes um, the opportunities that you maybe weren't expecting or at the time you weren't expecting them. Um, sometimes you just got to take them and, and those end up being the best spots and, and best opportunities that you could have uh, imagined. Now you didn't fight much in Belfast, not that you had to, but one guy that you did fight that you beat down pretty good this year. And I didn't know if there was anything behind it was a player named Brendan, Brendan Yed- Yedlowski from Guildford. Do you remember that fight? Yeah, no, there was nothing to it. It was just, yeah. uh, just kind of a heat of the moment one. Yeah. Nothing, no bad blood or anything to that. So I did ask Nicker because obviously the next year he wasn't there. He was in Milton Keynes. And I said, you know, I said, did you play against Blair at all? He goes, yeah, we played one time. And uh, cause I did, obviously I knew nothing happened, but I didn't know, you know, he's, he's a bit of a character and everything. So I said, 
uh, anything memorable for the from the game? And he goes, yeah, we played one time. I dangled hard and had a very rare snipe. And uh, I don't know if you remember him scoring the goal. And then he proceeded to send, he sent me the video. He's like, oh yeah, here it is. And he sent me the the video clip of it. So I had a good laugh about that. It's legit. It was a legit goal. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's hilarious. He was so pumped too. (laughs) Well, you were part of the, you were there for the race for 20. No, that was before me. Oh, I thought that was your first year there. No, that was that was the year before me. Oh, okay. I mean, oh, my... it's still going into the next year. It could still be going. It could <laughs> still be going until the end of time. He's never going to get there. No. The uh, the video that they did, the feature they did on that, where you have the players commenting on it, that to me is one of my all time favorite videos that I've ever watched. It yeah, they do a great job with some of the some of the social media stuff like that, and um, that's a big part of why the fans have, have really taken a liking to it they, they've done a great job with, with branding and uh connecting the players to to the fan base in the city it's it's, it's a cool spot to play uh i've known several guys who have played over there and i don't know if it's that my skull is too thick to absorb this but i i'm still not clear on all these tournaments that are over there and this cup and that cup uh but your second year there you won you were the eihl cup champion so is that the league championship or is that a tournament? What, what was that, that second year that you were there? So they run a, an in-season tournament, which, I mean, it, it runs in parallel with the season. So uh, they, they try to do the round robin games earlier in the season. So, you know, the first month of the year, you might play eight of your first games would be round robin games for the, for the cup. Um, and then it kind of slowly will progress throughout the season. So there'll be a time in December if you move on to the quarterfinals where you play uh, a quarterfinal game in between your league game schedule. So it just runs at the same time and they just schedule them in as it go. It's the same idea as like uh, the Champions League in, in soccer where they would have you know a knockout tournament that goes on mm-hmm. in the middle of their season. Okay. All right. Yeah, it's probably you probably just explained it the same way everyone else did. I just uh you know me like I just watching the you know the North American hockey. I'm used to the exhibition, mm-hmm. the regular season yep. and then the playoffs. So but uh but as long as you understood it, that's fine. Um but then your third season there you won the um the EIHL Cup and then you were actually the league champions that year. Yep. Um and when uh Kiefer also mentioned um he told me to ask you, he said, ask him about how he won the league championship here. It's a great story. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So uh, in the same way that the regular season trophy in, in soccer is considered the, the main prize, that's how it is in the UK. So basically from the drop of the puck of game one, every single game matters, which uh, some people liked, some didn't like, but uh, if you're one of the teams that are in the race for that first place trophy, it's uh, it's like you're in playoffs for the majority of the season. Certainly in the second half of the year, every game feels like a game seven. Um, and we were neck and neck with Cardiff the whole way. And the way it worked is there was 11 teams in the league. And so we were the odd team out on last uh, regular season day. Uh, so we were done. Uh, we were one point ahead, or no, sorry, we were level with Cardiff on points. They had one game to play. We were done. They just, so they just had to go to Coventry, uh, get a point. So they just had to go to overtime, and they would win the cup. 
and we were having our team awards banquet the same night. Um, well, it turns out that Coventry had nothing to play for, that the game meant nothing to them. They ended up winning the game in regulation, and we found out while we were in the middle of our team awards banquet with all of our fans and our whole team there. Uh, oh, no kidding. So, yeah, so it, uh, you know, people were watching on their phones, and then it just erupted into the biggest party you've ever seen. <laughs> That's tremendous. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty special. It's probably something that'll, I couldn't imagine it happening like that again. It's just, it's such a bizarre thing that we would be the one team not playing. Um, and then we would find out that we would end up winning it. It's just, it's such a weird circumstance. Uh, the final thing that Kiefer said about you was that uh, Belfast really missed your presence last season when you went to Cardiff, but he understood your decision financially, even though he wasn't happy to lose you to a rival. So that brings me to how you ended up in Cardiff. Um, did you, have, you had a clause in your contract. How did that work out? Uh, yeah, so it was just a two-year deal, but, the second year was was an option, so the team could either agree to terminate or I could agree to terminate. And Cardiff came with a better offer, so I I was allowed to terminate the deal and, and take the Cardiff one, which I did. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a super tough decision. Obviously, I I was comfortable in Belfast, and I I was familiar with um, my surroundings. I was happy there but um, Cardiff had a good offer and they they were in a similar standing you know they were a great city with uh, great players great ownership and they were competing for trophies the same with Belfast so I knew you know either spot I was going to be in the middle of a trophy race um, and this was just a an opportunity to to go and uh, have a little more security because I was given a two-year deal from them. So it was something I couldn't pass up at the time and uh, something that I was happy to take and uh, didn't regret it after going there and uh, playing it out. Now, one of the things you had mentioned earlier is about the fans and how passionate they are. And uh, your departure to Cardiff did uh, led to a lot of fans on social media sort of losing their shit, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah, it was um, it was an interesting <laughs> announcement, um, but to be honest, for the most part, it was uh, it was fairly respectful, and uh, most people were by and large understanding, um, and you know, sent well wishes for the most part. I mean, you're you're not going to please everyone, and especially with something that's a kind of a polarizing decision it's going to be disappointing to some but uh, you know for the most part i think the fans were uh, appreciative of the effort i put in for the team they're happy that i was able to deliver on some trophies and um i think for the most part understood and that's kind of all you can really do and and expect so um you know there was some definitely some backlash and and some entertainment but for the most part it was all good fun now, how soon into the season did you uh, visit Belfast? Did uh, Cardiff visit Belfast? Was it relatively quickly? No, it was actually quite late. Like it was almost into December, I think. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, so it was it was kind of nice. It was almost water under the bridge by that yeah. point. You know, it was uh, well into the season. They, you know, they had a whole list of new players, and they had um, 
you know, there are things to worry about. We had our thing to worry about. It was, you know, it was cool to go back and play and uh, see some old friends and stuff. But it, I think for the most part, um, the anger from the summer that some people might've had was for the most part gone. And did you get a nice reception when you, when you first uh, skated out for the warm up? Uh, no, it was, it wasn't bad. Uh, you know, yeah, that's so what I said. Was it not? I mean, did they at that point, like you said, it was kind of like water under the bridge? So, did you get a nice reception? Um, I think there was probably a couple of cheers, a couple mm-hmm. boos, more yeah. boos than cheers. But mm-hmm. I think from some of the past uh receptions that I'd seen players uh that had left and come back get, I, I was I was just fine. <laughs> <laughs> some guys got it pretty good. Now, that December, uh, you had the opportunity to play for your country and it's going to bother me now because I always like to do these chronologically and I forgot to ask you about, um, you actually played for Team Canada at least once before. Um, so I guess I'll ask you that first. Uh, it was a tournament in Australia. I think you played games in Perth and Brisbane. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. That was, um, it, you know what? It was actually about two weeks after we'd finished our Caller Cup run. Um, okay. And myself, um Josh London and Andrew Gordon were all on that team in St. John's. We all went, and some of our other good friends all took took a trip there. And it was um, it was a Canada versus U.S. style tournament. We did a five game exhibition trip and traveled around for three weeks in the summer. Well, it was there winter, but it, you know, it was still a pretty nice winter, if you ask me. Yeah, and yeah, it was cool. It was very cool. Um, Big, big crowds, like fifteen to twenty thousand people at these games, and um, and then we got to tour around and and see the country in in between games. So it was an awesome, awesome trip. And then that brings me, and that you know, my memory was jogged when I mentioned the Spengler Cup. So, um, how did that work out? That uh, you were invited to play for Team Canada for the Spengler Cup? Um, yeah. So I guess to come full circle in my career. Um, Shane Dome is now part of the management team with, with team Canada. And they had a couple injuries to guys, um, late and, uh, he, he reached out right before Christmas and it was kind of a last minute thing and, um, offered me to, to come out and basically come as a, 13th, 14th forward um, with no guarantees of, of games or anything and um, just kind of taking the experience and uh, I told you know I, I was I was speechless and I told my coach and GM and they were um, adamant that I accept and I, I'd leave the next <laughs> morning <laughs> so me and my girlfriend packed up we were actually just going to our team Christmas, Christmas party that night and had to you know Cancel that and pack up our stuff and head straight to Davos. And within, I think, the first game, um, one of the guys broke his wrist and another guy got the flu. So I was in the lineup the next morning just like that. <laughs> wow, that was quick. Yeah. Um, so there was, there was no time to think about it or get any nerves. It was just pull the jersey on and... and go play. So I got into two games, played the semifinal and then, uh, sat out for the final, but 
luckily we had a nice lead going into the third. So me and the other, the other guys got to go and uh, throw our gear on in between and, and go out for the celebration with our gear on. Oh, that's nice. Uh, definitely a great memory. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that was a good way to to finish things off. Now, when you go back to Cardiff again, you won the uh, EHI EIHL Cup, and then the the champion. So, was this? Did you win the the championship again, the league championship with Cardiff? Well, we were well on our way, uh, and then the league got shut down due to. Oh yeah. Yeah. God, it feels like forever ago when this thing started. Yeah, it's crazy, huh? Jeez. So it was, um, I think we had eight games left, and we had to win five of them okay. uh, to secure it. And uh, it looked like we were going to be doing it, but <laughs> before yeah. we knew it, we were we were packing up our lives and heading for for home. Uh, and we were lucky just to get back in time before the before the borders closed. Everything. It was a crazy time. Yeah. So... Um... While you're sitting at home, uh, you come to the decision where you're going to hang up the skates. Uh, what what played a role in your in your decision to retire from uh, hockey? Yeah, yeah, from hockey. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I guess it was a combination of things. Um, well, number one, I, the UK league they said in probably August that the league wasn't going to go ahead. Um, our GM gave us permission a few weeks prior to, to seek out other opportunities. He said he wouldn't hold us back from anything. Um, and, you know, the more I looked around and the more I thought about where I was at with my life and, uh, and my career, I, I just felt like I didn't, I didn't want to go and, um, you know, pursue something just to play. Like if I wasn't going to be happy and I was just doing it for a paycheck, I just didn't think that was how I wanted to finish playing. Um, I was comfortable in the UK. I really, really liked playing there. And if that league wasn't going to go, I think the more I thought about it, I was, I, I was just kind of ready to, to stay home. And I, I, I didn't think the decision was going to kind of be that easy, I guess. Um, the more I thought about it, just, it just felt right. And, um, and then as I started looking into some employment opportunities, um, my cousin offered me a, a good job to start out in project management. And as I looked into it, it just uh, it seemed like it was too good to pass up. It was a, a great chance to learn and um, uh, kind of start working towards a, a second path, a new career. And uh, so that's kind of that's kind of how I came to the to the decision and I, I guess I haven't looked back since it hasn't been that long yet. And I guess, um, you know, until there's snow on the ground, it doesn't feel like it's hockey season really. So maybe that'll kind of change things. But, um, I've, I've been super happy with, I guess my career in general and, and just where things are, are going now and in, in a different professional life. That's awesome. So, uh, I always lead off with the same question. Like I asked you, who were you as a kid? And I always end up with the same question. Um, did I miss anything? Is there anything about your career that I didn't touch on that, uh, you'd like to say? <laughs> I think we just about covered every damn thing. <laughs> uh, that was impressive. That was, that was some good homework by you. Uh, you know, caught a few things that, that have slipped past me. So that was cool to kind of look back on, on some of the things and, um, kind of go over some things that I guess led me to, to some different opportunities and, um, and took me some spots that I would have never 
never even dreamed of. So um, that was cool. I appreciate that. Well, I, I always say I don't do many things well, but uh, as far as this show and I love doing the research and uh, I wish I could get paid for this. I'd love to do this as a full-time job, but uh, right now it's a labor of love. I, I love doing it and the research is the fun part. So, and I, I appreciate the kind words because, uh, you know, like I said, it's uh, it's a lot of fun for me to do it. And uh, I just like to thank you for your time and uh, I wish you an early happy birthday. You got a birthday coming up November 1st, correct? <laughs> it's very good research. <laughs> I guess so, that's an easy one. <laughs> yeah. Everybody hit hit Blair Riles. Uh Blair Riles. Blair Riley. I think your uh Twitter is B Riles25, if I'm not mistaken. So on November first, I'm gonna tweet about it. Everybody remember to wish Blair a happy birthday. And uh Blair, thank you for your time. We're we're a little shy of three hours here. It's unbelievable that you gave me so much time. And uh I just want to say thank you again. I appreciate it, man. That was uh, that was cool. I, I appreciate you doing the homework and, and taking the time out to to go over things. That was that was a cool look back. So thank you. Thank you very much, Blair. Have a great night. Yeah, same to you. All right, thanks. Bye now. Thanks again to Blair Riley for doing this interview. I learned a lot during the interview. Blair was a great guest. Uh, I hope you people learned a lot too. And uh, as far as next week goes, we'll see what happens. So everybody out there. Have a great day and stay safe.